Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about virtual production and media of all kinds. Uh, second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. Today, we have our own Nick Justishin from Drexel University. He will be here talking about LIDAR. Um, so if you've got questions about LIDAR, you might be able to sneak some photogrammetry questions in there as well. Uh, Nick is here to answer your questions. So um, stay tuned for that in the second hour. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First in from David Brady in New York, New York. Last minute spend and needs to land by 1230. Looking at a Blackmagic Design 6K, but wondering about the most versatile lens for satellite insert use, as well as potential Zoom calls. Go ahead, Nigel. So I'm not sure I can answer the satellite, but for my Zoom, I use the 24 to 70. I find that uh, allows me to move the camera around a bit. I do have a 50mm 1.2, which I love, but I can't quite seem to get the uh, tripod and everything else working with that. Good, TJ. I also agree with uh, um, Nigel. A 24 to 70 is a great range on the Pocket 6K. Um, take a look at the Sigma if you're looking to save a few dollars over the Canon version. Um, I have the Sigma, that's what you're looking at me through now, and it is actually beefier than my Canon version of that lens. And I know for David, it's just a walk down the street to get it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, the other thing too, I mean, if if uh, I think the 24 to 70 has been really successful for us as far as using those, and where it starts to tap out tends to be at about eight feet. So anything longer than eight feet, you won't be able to get to. Um, but right now, I'm at about, I'm at about four feet and at, at about 50 millimeters uh, in that uh, 24 to 70. Remember, when you think about that lens, you want that your your area that you you have uh, focused to be in the middle of the lens, not at either end, if you can avoid it, because um, it'll be a little softer on both ends of the of most lenses. Um, so just keep that in mind. Also, if you're looking for insert studios and possible zoom, and you can afford more. The FR7 is pretty, <laughs> you should know that if you haven't seen our episode from yesterday, last time, uh, that's the one I'm hoping to get to test next uh, next month. Next qu next question. From Burkhard Friedrich in uh, Eastenburg, Germany. Uh, here's the question. Killed my flow A today when changing mic on an XLR from an SM58 to an MB7. Now, I don't think there is an MB7. It could be an MV7. Uh, it could also be an SB... Uh, or SMV7. Uh, SMV7. So we're not sure of the two, so we'll have to take that into account. Uh, apparently, the fader was open. There was a sizzling sound, and that capsule sizzled. Now, Flow 8 lights all blinking. Uh, the microphone still works on USB. Any idea what caused the damage? Go ahead, Tim. Um, I'm not sure what caused the damage exactly, but you can do the um, uh, the Flow 8 has uh, obviously phantom power for each channel. You can do that individually. Could have been something with the phantom power. Um, there's also a way to completely reset the, uh, the uh, Flow 8, and I'll put the uh, link in the chat for that just to Good. see if that might help. Mitchell? Yeah, I think that's the MV7 because the giveaway is that he's using USB with it too. So any number of things that involve electricity and uh, things can fail. So I don't think most mic modern microphones are going to catch fire if there's phantom power thrown at it, that it when it doesn't need it or vice versa. Um, unusual circumstances might cause that. But uh, I think you might have a uh, bad mic. So... Yeah, or a cable. Um, so one thing is neither of those mics require a 48 volt. They don't, they're both dynamic mics. And so you shouldn't have needed to have any power on. But one thing to look at is whether you had phantom power. They'll work with phantom power typically. But when you have phantom power, you have to, usually what we try to do is power things down before we start plugging and unplugging. Now, 
if you have high quality cables, a high quality mixer, high, a good a good mic, you shouldn't need to do that. You should just be able to unplug and plug things. You'll hear a little bit of a pop, but it shouldn't be a problem. But there's two things that I think that you might want to look at um, because you said USB. <laughs> Number one is not the highest quality cable plugged into something with phantom power. Um, if it's shorted, it could have pulled it right back in, pulled that power right back in. And again, if you have dynamic mics, there's no reason to have the, the phantom power on. The second one that I think is curious, and I'm so tempted to test, but I'm afraid to, is that you had the mic plugged into USB at the same time you plugged it in with Phantom, and there was some kind of ground loop or or stray voltage that went between the two of them um, that that basically did something, which would be really cool to test, but I need to find things that I can that can die before we put that in. But I've never thought of plugging an MV7 into USB and then also plug it into XLR. So let us know maybe in the chat or whatever if that if you might have done that because that's a super important data point for us. All right, next question. Nigel DeSalle from Austin, Texas. If I wanted to build a new small studio for doing Zoom ISO and you had the money, which would you pick and why between the ATEM SDI Extreme, the ISO, uh, the ATEM Extreme ISO, excuse me, uh, 2ME Constellation and a 1ME Production Studio? I go ahead, Nigel. So I was playing fantasy studio building, which is a game I play uh, regularly. And so I was thinking of going to the, you know, the SDI version of the ATEM and my eyes flickered down the page and I saw the constellation. <laughs> and then unfortunately there was a little bit of a gap and then there was the uh, the production studio. And I appreciate it's a thousand dollars more and I think it's 4K, but I was just interested in given money wasn't a restriction uh, at that level, what would you pick and why? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I, if I had it to do all over again, I really want to get all of this off my desk. See all these wires? This is, this is just a failure waiting to happen on the back of my regular extreme. I would go for the uh, uh, the 2ME uh, because I could rack mount it and then I could remote control it. And with mix uh, effect, um, you have pretty much all the control you need. So that would be the way I would go. Yeah, if, if the... so. If you're talking about the older 1ME, the gray ones, um, they're a lot less flexible and they don't, the 1ME, I don't believe, has the super source. So I think you really want to go back to the um, the 2ME if you're or doing that or the production, the, the production 2ME, which I think is like $1,700 or something like that. Uh, and that's going to have your super source and then it's going to have a lot more input, a lot more output. The things that, that the advantage that the ISO has is if you get the ISO, the ISO version, you can record all those tracks. So you won't have that in the 2ME uh, constellation, any way to record all the tracks if for some reason you wanted to do that. Now, I, I've not done that very much, so I'm, I'm not certain I need it. The other thing is you have a surface area. You know, you have something you can push buttons on. And so if you're using a stream deck and you're comfortable with that, you may be able to do it without it. I have to admit, I am very, very close to getting a constellation for my house. <laughs> so, so like, you know, because uh, like the little one and specifically the, my reasoning there is that I think I'm going to build it around the stream deck and 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 have it kind of off somewhere else and then additional io is very tempting so having 20 in 12 out um is a it's a very tempting solution and so uh, and i don't use any of the buttons i mean other than the big buttons if if black magic allowed us to reprogram all these little buttons on the extreme then i would keep the, i would say the extreme 100 <laughs> percent because then you could put little stickers on them and know that you're gonna you know there's like a thousand things that you could do it'd be like a stream deck on steroids um, anyway, so uh, so without that, minus that, then um, I think I would, I, I think I'm, I'm thinking about home and it's mostly routing, you know, it's mostly being able to route all that stuff. SDI is just, you know, I, I and what I was going to do is I, I own, 
an SDI and an HDMI extreme. And I started looking at the SDI and I said, oh, I can route everything to all the monitors and I can have all this other stuff here. And then I thought, well, then if I get a, a router, I can do more of that. But the SDI is just a lot easier to manage. And then once you go to the SDI, you then you start going to the, that production studio. So you just have to decide if you want to record ISOs. That's the big thing. Next question. Oh, sorry, Nigel, you had something else to add. Yeah, I, I didn't know whether the production studio had 4K and that was that was going to be a, an investment protection idea. It does, and that's the bummer. You know, like I've just decided that I'm probably at home going to be doing 1080p. Um, I, you know, after that, I mean, I we're getting close. We're not quite there, but we're getting close to where you have to be very careful about buying black magic hardware because we're starting to get close to NAB. <laughs> so, so just you know, so as we start to ramp up, once we cross the line, the end of the year, if you're trying to get a tax savings is the last time that I usually try to invest in black magic unless I'm on a production pinch that requires it. Um, mostly because they'll start, oftentimes nowadays, they'll start rolling things out in January. January, February, March, they'll start new things, they'll have these new events and culminating oftentimes in NAB. They've tried to break it up so that they, they're not announcing 60 things, um, on, which they used to at NAB. Um, they kind of break it out, but but we usually see start to see activity in January and February. Um, from uh, from Black Magic, so I'd be careful about buying something afterwards. If you're trying to get it in before the end of the year, it makes sense. If you're not, you might want to want to wait. Uh, yeah, go ahead, John. Oh, next question. Sorry. Next question in from Rick Yackel in Winnipeg, Ontario. Um, Rick, first of all, we want to thank you for adding your link to the bottom of your question. That's a new thing we'd like to have you do in the future. It makes it easier for us uh, to manage these questions. Your question, has anyone on office hours tried this video editor? It has the bonus feature of creating a record of the dialogue. You use the dialogue to edit out the mistakes. There is a free tier. And this is Descript.com. Uh, um, yeah, go ahead, John. So I've been testing this this software out and it it looks promising. It, the the free tier does not give you the ability to train the AI. And so that's the real value in this application is once you train it with your voice, your text that you written into your script, if you edit and delete that, it will it will automatically regenerate the voice. So so in that regard, we we see some good use cases for that. Uh we're still testing it though. It looks looks interesting. Yeah, Nigel. Yeah, I did the same as John. I got the free tier. And I think if what you're doing is pieces where you talk to camera and you want the jump shots and stuff to to make it fresh, it's a great product for that. It was really interesting. So I was having to add errors in so I could take them out and reframe it and stuff. And it looked great for that. But again, you know, anything more than the base tier is $12 a month. There's another charge that, you know, I didn't want to put on the credit card. And so that's where I stopped. Yeah, it looks really... It looks really interesting, and we're hoping to get those, them on to uh, the show in the beginning of next year. So stay tuned for that. Um, I think that they're really building up a pretty fascinating solution. Being able to insert the text back in is the thing that I'm I'm pretty interested in. Um, the people I've talked to so far have found that you can add a couple words. You don't want to necessarily like rewrite your script with it, um, but they but they um, but they said you can usually get away with a, with a little bit. But that's I haven't played with it myself. But we're going to soon. Next question. David Brady, New York, New York, asking, with Zoom ISO in an SDI workflow, is it necessary to pull the audio out of the SDI path? And if so, how are you doing it? I go ahead, Mitchell. And what he's referring to is that the audio is embedded in the SDI stream, and depending on how you're switching it, going into Zoom or coming out of Zoom, it remains embedded until somebody takes it out. And go ahead, Paul. 
Yeah, I would just suggest uh, open gear frames. Um, you can get de-embedder cards from SDI to analog audio. So that's an easy way to do it. And also, you don't need to unless you need audio somewhere else. <laughs> like, you know, if, if, you, if you embed it into the, into the um, SDI that you have there, you can just keep passing it through and it'll just go into Zoom from there. So um, Paul's 100% correct that if you, um, if you need it somewhere else, getting de-embedders, are, there's a lot of different ways to de-embed. Um, but uh, the, the coolest one, by the way, if you're in, in, a, in a 1080p, uh, no, I can't think of, there's a company and I'll try to find the name. I can't, it just didn't pop into my head that does Dante in and out of SDI 3G. So it's 16 channels in, 16 channels out of Dante. It's like a little box. It's about $1,600 and it'll just, it'll just, you can take all your Dante and embed it, take de-embed it, all those fun things. So um, I'll try to find it and put it in the event, event uh, list. Next question. Clive Kitchener from Sook, BC, Canada. Has anyone using a Mac Studio had issues with refresh rates and scaling on dual monitors? Two known issues, apparently, and there's a link to the problem. Uh, go ahead, TJ. I have a Mac Studio running four monitors, and I've never had any issues with frame rate or scaling. Now, um, I did take a look at that uh, thread, and it looked like everybody that has had a problem in that thread is either running off of a laptop or they are running their video through a um, dock or like a, a um, I can't think of the brand name now, but they're running their video through another USB dock of some kind. So that that could be a effect there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, running your video through almost any kind of dock is usually going to be problematic. Um, you know, usually the docks, you just got to be very careful with that. You can, um, but you, if you start adding more things to it, you would absolutely have the symptoms that you're talking about, especially at 4K or higher. Uh, next question. Paul Buchan from Columbus, Ohio, asking, with the storm hitting a good portion of the U.S., curious what recommendations the panel has for remote monitoring of gear and facilities? You know, the Nest, Nest cameras are pretty useful. <laughs> like, we've used a lot of them where they're just easy to set up. Of course, you're going through the cloud, and there's, you know, you, you can worry about some of those things. But we've been, we've used them a lot from a security perspective of just knowing what's going on and haven't had any real issues with those. Uh, and they're just easy to set up. Um, so just remember all your logins, because once you get them out, if you forget what your login is, you've got a bunch of little bricks that are hard to get working again. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, other than stuff just not working, it's good to have a camera because it's going to be burst pipes that you got to look out for too. Uh, well, yeah, you hope hopefully you don't have burst pipes. <laughs> that's that, that's a, a very specific one that, that's problematic. Uh, I know that in cold areas, especially when it got cold and we were worried about it, I, I'm in California now, so I don't have to worry about it as much, but burst pipes is definitely something we thought a lot about when I was uh, in Pennsylvania, and we cover things with plastic. So, like, and, and a lot of times, if we don't have control of those things, we cover them with plastic because if it's for two reasons. If you've got fire or it gets really, or, or pipes burst, you don't want everything spraying directly onto your equipment. So, um, covering that up. And we used to have stuff that we'd push across, you know, our shelves and stuff like that, that we would, if we were worried about it for, for whatever reason, just to make sure it's not spraying onto it. Um, but you're absolutely correct, Mitchell. Uh, burst pipes is a thing. Um, and you don't need to, you just need to keep it over 32 <laughs> Fahrenheit. So uh, you just got to figure that out. Having something that's telling you your temperature remotely is useful. Um, so, you know, having something that can, that you can um, access for that we did a very high tech way to do it. We had our Nest camera looking at the at the warehouse, and then we had a thermometer in the shot <laughs> that was close enough to the camera that we could just look over and see what was going on. It was one one or two days that we put it. up. We, we kind of rigged it up because 
in California, again, we don't really get it. In, in where, we, where we are, it was like one or two days it was going to get that cold. Uh, next question. TJ Asher from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm sure it's cold there, and he's also on the panel. Recommendations on the best way to clean the earwax off my in-ear monitors and how to keep them clean, and yes, I do clean my ears. Javier. Uh, well, earwax is something that's going to happen. It's like a natural thing, so the only way I've found to do it is to, to clean them constantly. Uh, I have like this um, weekly reminder to clean my gear, like my iPhone, my Air, my iPad, my 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 earphones, and, and I found this uh, cleaning kit that includes. I carry it everywhere. It includes like this uh, with this like liquid. You can clean the outside using a microfiber cloth, and for the it also helps for the little nooks and everything. When if you have to go deeper without damaging it, it also includes like this kind of Q-tips but uh, with smoother and also these uh, like little brushes. So I, every every week, if I do it, I, it takes like a minute because if I have like two weeks without doing it, it keeps uh, getting dirtier. So like clean it constantly and use these kind of cloths and very, very careful not to damage them. Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, there's a number of solutions. Um, if you got to clean them, just get rid of them and uh, replace them with a new one. Uh, the other thing is, if you're going to be cleaning your ears, remember, do not stick the Q-tip inside your ear. <laughs> I think okay. any ear doctor would tell you that it's not good to stick that thing so, inside your ear. Yeah, okay, that, that's not a technical question. So, so the um, the uh, one thing that I do is I have a, um, a it's an electronics vacuum that I use for it because I'm always afraid of pushing the earwax into the in through the grill. So I'm always trying to pull it back out rather than push it back in. Um, and then the, um, uh, the, the one of the great things about the Edemotics is that they have a little insert that filters an insert and you just screw in, pop it out and, and replace it. And that's, I wish more companies did, had just a replaceable grill. Um, but when it doesn't replace, then you get, especially after you've had Edemotics for a decade, you, you're super paranoid about the grill, you know, that you're going to push stuff into it. Um, but I, I find that if you do regularly vacuum it out and pull it out the battery in the headset dies before the <laughs> before you actually have any real damage uh next question and douglas carmichael is here asking i'm watching bohemian rhapsody with my aunt and i'm impressed by the period accurate equipment in the concert and tv studio scenes how would they find equipment from that era that worked much less people who remember how to use it uh that is a whole business <laughs> there's a whole business around uh period stuff especially period cars people who own um cars oftentimes will um uh you know that that's their business they'll have like a bunch of 50s cars and they're constantly taking them somewhere in the united states to be for 50s movies uh, go ahead tj um because it's a movie i'm guessing that the people they showed operating the equipment may not necessarily have been actual operators but actors playing the part hey, go ahead mitchell yeah, I know a lot of people that collect, uh, you know, old microphones and old setups, and uh, rarely are they actually being used uh, electrically in the production. They're just there as, as props, and um, it's cool. It's a real cool thing to see them. And a lot of times, though, it is it is something that they get taught, like, from someone who's done it in the past of, like, this is what you would be doing. You know, this is how this would work. And um, it depends on the, on the director, but some directors get pretty specific. Like, the actors are given extremely detailed um, instructions on how something works and they practice it over and over and over again um, in a way that that is because what happens is is that even if it's not accurate having the confidence and hitting things the way it should 
creates a, a little level of realism um, that that is that is that just doesn't feel right. Actors very quickly don't feel like they're doing anything if you don't really tell them how to do it and how you would hit it and have someone who's done it look at it and go, "Oh, no one would ever do that." Um, and it really takes people out of the movie when it doesn't feel as as real as it could. So it depends on the director, but some directors pay a lot of attention to it, and most of those directors are really big directors. The small the small indie directors pay a lot less attention to it oftentimes. Um, next question. Colin McCahey in uh, Dublin, Ireland, asking, recorded authentic client testimonials with actor for client. What would be the correct wording to place on the video as an asterisk uh, disclaimer? Just want to put something in the bottom left corner to inform the viewer. Go ahead, TJ. Actual client testimonial portrayed by actor. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That's just right. Uh, Next question. Mike Edwards, Brooklyn, New York, asking, Morning, guys. My computers are connected to a Furman strip outside of leaving the computers and strip permanently on. Is there any way to remotely turn on the strip and also my computers so that I can access them? Thanks. Go ahead, Javier. Uh, maybe you could use a smart plug that you can uh, either access remotely, like uh, through HomeKit or any other like um, home automation, or with a schedule. I have ones that have schedule for different hours that turn on and turn off. And if the computer has also a schedule with when to turn on and when to turn off, you can like uh, cascade those two. Like the strip turns on at at ten to, uh, before nine, and at nine your computer turns on, and that would be a way to automate the turning off and on and off. And go ahead, uh, Paul. Yeah, we've used uh, Wattbox. It's a pro- professional brand um, that seems to work well. Uh, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, kind of what Paul said. Um, but I would be concerned about just having a switch that turns everything on all at once. You may want to turn them on in sequence, um, depending on what you're doing. Um, you're going to still have to individually turn, you know, set things up anyhow, turn on, you know, like, bring up your browser and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I know that that didn't answer your question exactly, but there are devices out there that you can, uh, whenever we do our sound system at our church, we just toggle a switch and it powers up all the uh, amplifiers and devices in sequence so that nothing takes a big hard hit on the electronics. Yeah, the uh, and, and the Furman ones are a good place to start. Also, we there's a whole variety. You start searching for PDU, um, power distribution, you can find ones with network connections. They'll tell you, you can go in and look at what every single port is doing, um, turn any individual uh, power on and off individually. They start to get more expensive, uh, but there's a, a lot of solutions in, in that area once you start to do, do that search. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's here with a question. When you access ChatGPT, you see a checking your connection message from Cloudflare. What Cloudflare service would this be and how is it implemented? I, I think that it's um, actually managing the, uh, it's, it's just managing the permissions. <laughs> like I think that's what Cloudflare is doing is managing getting in there. Um, you know, there's obviously this is a giant cloud solution. So it, it's managing who's getting in, who's getting out is my guess. Next question. James Fosley from Minneapolis, Minnesota, asking, uh, Universal Pictures is being sued because an actor appearing in the trailer is not in the movie. Is a trailer a unique piece of art, or can it only contain pieces of the movie? Go ahead, Jesse. A trailer is a unique piece of art, and I think, I'm I'm trying to think of uh, common examples where a trailer would include uh, movies that aren't in the movie, and uh, like legacy sequels, or not legacy, any sequel that recaps earlier films. And also, I think we hear a lot of the moon landing in trailers. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the problem really is, is that a lot of times the trailers come out that aren't, um, the trailer is long before the movie came out, especially if a trailer comes out a year before or whatever, they're not done with it yet. I mean, there was, you know, I know when I worked on, on Star Wars, they put my shots. I was, I was, I had a lot of shots in the first trailer, those queen ship shots. And, uh, I was really excited, but it was just because they were done. <laughs> I mean, it was partially because they were, they were the collection of the, there was probably when the first trailer came out, there's probably 800, 900 shots out of 2000 that were even completed. And so, you know, they're not, the shots aren't completed. They're not edited in. I, I, I have to admit that I, that an actor suing for being in the trailer and not in the film they better, I don't know who it is. Like, I didn't, I, I haven't read this article, but that is crazy as an actor to do that. Like, you know, because you're just, you're, you've now just told all these producers that you are crazy. <laughs> like, you know, I am, a, I am crazy and problematic and I, and I have a lawyer. That is like the worst possible thing for an actor to, to, to broadcast. So I'd be very curious who it is and we'll see how many big films they're in after this. Unless they're, I mean, unless they're like Robert De Niro level, they're going to have some trouble. Uh, next question. Next question in from Douglas Carmichael again. In an article about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, it mentioned that NBC used 11 cameras on the ground along with one camera on a helicopter. If you could solve the battery life RF problems, could you replace the helicopter with a drone? Go ahead, Nigel. My experience of living in New York is that the wind goes down those avenues very fast and very cold. And my guess is it's probably quite hard to manage a drone of any uh, small size in the wind that gets generated and you'd really want to be sensitive about anything bigger over people's heads yeah and there's so many regulations about it and so much concern about uh, drones right now go ahead nick yeah so um it, you have to be certified to be able to fly a drone commercially number one and it's called a part 107 certification so i i have that and then you're um there's a lot of regulations and New York itself is essentially a, an area that, that uh, flying drones is, is not really authorized. There's a number of uh, what are called uh, class B airports in the area. So, you know, major airports. And so that airspace is generally uh, quite restricted due to that. Um, there are also rules for flying over people. And so um, you would require a rather extensive uh, exception. You'd have to apply for that. And the FAA would review that and uh, probably deny it, honestly. Uh, the FAA is great about reviewing and um, uh, approving uh, appropriate exceptions. Uh, so I had a scenario where for uh, a graduation ceremony for my university where I wanted to fly a drone inside a stadium that was next to a Class B airport. And so it was against all sorts of rules. Uh, but I filed an uh, application for an exception and said, well, I'm going to fly over empty parts of the stadium. I'm going to stay inside the stadium below the level of the highest set of lighting around it. Uh, it's a it's the main, you know, National League Baseball Stadium in Philadelphia. And uh, I was pretty quickly approved for it. I was actually really impressed with how the FAA reviewed it. So it is possible, but I mean, there's a lot of hoops to go through. I mean, if you're going to fly in New York over crowds, it's not a really good idea. Yeah. In general, the insurance will, will is, is uh, the helicopter operator carries the insurance and there's someone whose life depends on the helicopter staying in the air, the, the, the pilot, um, you know, and, and there's not a lot of RF, you know, there. So, so those are things that are, and, and, you know, when you have a pilot operating, you have somebody who's generally, if they're especially operating a, a camera crew, 
uh, has been doing this for at least a decade, if not more, and has thousands and thousands and thousands of hours over it and knows all those regulations. It's just a different thing. The drones haven't been around that long, you know, and so they, so it's just really, I think we will eventually see lots of drones covering lots of these events, um, but we're not there from a battery perspective, from an RF perspective, from a regulation perspective, and from a skill perspective. We're still pretty far away from making that happen. Uh, next question. From Nick Justician in Philadelphia, and also here at our panel, any recommendations for low-cost, autofocus SDI cameras looking to add more witness cameras to our motion capture studio? You know, I think that the, the best ones are probably going to be the Sonys. So the small, like the $500 Sonys are probably really, really good witness cameras. I think that they're the 4100, 6300, 5200. They're, I'm making this up because I can't remember, I never remember the numbers, but but they're they're in that range. They're like four to six hundred dollars, um, and they are going to be. Now, what we've always used, as as you know, Nick, has been GoPros. <laughs> so we use a lot of GoPros because they're always in focus because they're all wide angle. So you know, we have lots of we in the past when we did witness cameras, we just inserted a lot of GoPro cameras into it because they they worked well, and you don't need anything newer than a four, you know, a four or five, and it'll do the job. So. Um, that'd be something also to think about. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, for uh, maybe like a witness camera, um, we use we have one. Uh, it's a very inexpensive PTZ camera. It's a AV Cans, mm-hmm. and it does NDI twenty X or, um, and it also has the SDI outs and all that kind of stuff. And also, there's a thirty. So that's only five hundred fifty bucks. And then there's also a thirty X PTZ for like seven hundred with SDI out. Um, but um, you're not going to get any depth of field kind of stuff. It, but it does nice. fairly well autofocusing, and there's some, you know, it, it kind of does okay. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, yeah. So I was just going to add that um, the so right now we're using this uh, Sony EX1 that I had got. I picked up used somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you still have that camera? It's great. I still have that camera, and I was using it. I was using it yesterday in a shoot, and sometimes in this, you know, so we'll we'll mount a camera to a tripod, and so the director for the shoot was uh, connecting in via Zoom session, and uh, so there were there were requests about, you know, can you you get the camera closer? Can you zoom in? So it um, PTZ, like a permanent mount PTZ, isn't so much what I'm looking for, but more of something that we would have on a tripod that would you know have uh, uh you know, wall wall power so that it, it we don't have to depend on batteries and and then ultimately an sdi out we're using uh you were just talking about atems and video switching and routing we we're using an atem sdi extreme as our our main box uh for handling video and i mean it's awesome so we've got all these you know eight sdi ends we're, we're running our computer screens into that we can iso record everything that's being fed in and so we've got our kind of our overhead god view cameras uh, but that the the ex1 is is getting really long in the tooth like yeah. it, it's it, it's ready to, to be it's almost 18 years old i think 18 or almost 18 18 19 or maybe 15 to 18 years old I maybe yeah i think in the 15 year range yeah, yeah. so i was i was like oh, man, i'm having those. trouble even getting this in focus right now does that one still so, does anyway. that one the one that had the sticker the nab sticker on the outside it was one of it, one of them that, I, uh, I don't think this one has the NAB sticker. Yeah, <laughs> we, had, we, had a, we had one with an NAB sticker. Couldn't get it off. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Marshall makes a full line of cameras. Not all of them are are uh, autofocusing, but um, they're small. They are, they are powered exactly the way you say, and they have SDI out and in. 
Are you delivering um, like a, a, a motion capture, like a motion builder output as well? So the, does the director see for, for body capture, are they seeing the, the characters in the scene? Yeah. So um, again, we have some of the SDINs on that uh, extreme ISO uh, are getting computer feeds. So that, you know, we can switch to the, them or we use the super source and, and we use the super source quite a bit. So in this scenario, we were doing facial capture as well as body capture. And so um, in the super source, we were able to show here's what the Vicon is capturing for body. Here is the full screen uh, face cam on the head mount face cam. Here's the witness cam that they were directing. And then, then we also just had an, um, one of the, the got cam overhead views so they could kind of see the overall layout and like they could easily direct like, okay, oh, oh, to your left, there's a C stand, go to that. And you know, so that kind of thing. If you're really good to do that in a second hour sometime, just saying, I'm just saying no pressure. Oh yeah, we should totally do that. Yeah, let's, be great. Let's, let's make a second hour out of that. Yeah. All right, uh, next question. Talalik Lopez Waterman from Nafik, Virginia. What methodology do Mac and iPad users use to remote desktop from iPad to a Mac? Um, I think that the one that we haven't done it for a while, going from the iPad to the Mac, um, I think that the one that we've used in the past has been AnyDesk, I believe, because it's just a web page and we're able to jump into it. So that's the one that I think that we've used. Um, I think that LogMeIn will also work, but LogMeIn is painfully expensive um, to to do that with. Uh, I also believe that you may be able to do it with remote, remote desktop, but we haven't tested that um, between those two. Um, but that's a, that's a good question. We should really we should lab that out. Um, next question. Next one in from Tim Holm from Los San Lorenzo, California. And here in our panel, I do very late mastering of our weekly live stream, Head, Tails, some leveling. What Waves plugin would you purchase for a quick one-and-done workflow? I'll go at Javier. The heads and tails, you could do it in editing, but the for the leveling, uh, the one of the best plugins for like simple, quick leveling, it's called Max Volume with two X's from Waves, uh, if we are talking only Waves uh, plugins. It has, you, you define like the lower level and the high level. It's a, sorry, it's like an expander, but with at least more control. And it's like a limiter, but with a le uh, less, uh, at least more or less more control. So it has not that many features, so it's not like super detailed, but it can help you get like quick levels very fast. So you, you can look at it. It's like $29 right now. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, I like the uh, the Ultra Maximizer L2. It's a uh, it's a limiter, but it really doesn't act just like a limiter. It also does a little normalizing, and I always use it as a brick wall limiter and try to keep it so that it's just there in case something pops over the line. Yeah, um, and and I do most of the stuff. I do some some stuff with Isotrope. I don't have as much experience with the with the waves, um, but the things that I the, the the general thing that I do for leveling out things is that I I take the tracks and I. I usually normalize them to negative 23 dB uh, uh, luffs. Um, and that, you know, gets them all into a, into a certain range among each other. And then I compress it. <laughs> so I compress the output um, usually two to one um, with a, usually I dig down to about negative 18 um, to, to pull that. And that kind of pulls everything together. Um, that, that for me, that's been a pretty effective first pass. Then I'm worried about plosives, um, de-essing, um, noise reduction. Those are all things that I might do later, but those are the things that I do. Um, and I, I would not say that I'm an expert at it, <laughs> but, um, and then I, I, I do, if it's two people talking, which is what I've been doing a lot of, I automate the whole thing. So I go through and I pulled, I, I go through and fade everything in and out to make sure that everything's as clean as I can make it. Um, next question. 
And it's from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What is the best long USB cable and USB hub to run a group of Insta360 Link webcams? What's the longest USA, USB cable you can use? There are fiber USB cables. So you, what you want, that's what you're looking for. Um, and I, I'm not sure who's making the current ones. I haven't tried to do this for a while, but what you're looking for is a fiber USB cable and they're absolutely made, they're powered. And um, the longest one I've used is about 100 feet. So, so they, 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 you can go a long way. They're expensive. The hundred foot one, I think, is like four hundred dollars. So, so it's not. These aren't inexpensive um, solutions, um, but they are. But they are out there. So, do a search for fiber uh, USB, uh, USB C, or um, to, to to fiber, and you should be able to find them. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada, asking, is there a way I can wire up my studio lights mounted on the ceiling to a UPS on my breaker panel? Can you explain more about what you're doing, Alex? Well, I have lights mounted on the ceiling and they're power. They're plugged into, uh, I have power on the ceiling as well. So I'd rather not run a long power cable from the UPS all the way to the ceiling because that's kind of ugly. So that's why I was asking about the breaker panel. And you don't have any kind of what what you have there. You don't have any kind of uh, grid, you know, that you're using. So no, usually what we do no. is we run. The, I should have I should have installed one, but I don't. I I just made a new one with Maker Pipe. It's quite nice. <laughs> anyway, so um, the uh, yeah, I would um, uh, I would. The easiest way for you to do it is to run is to run a, a long extension cable. Um, if you are going to do something with your breaker panel, uh, then you should hire an electrician. <laughs> like so, so you know, or you know, the, 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 so uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't get into the breaker panel or rewiring things without um, doing that. So the other thing that you potentially could do is put something right in line up there in the ceiling, like a little. You can get the little ones that that are on your home kit or on some whatever you want to automate it with that you can just you can just use your phone and turn it on and off. So that might be another way for you to do that. Um, but if you're trying to do UPS, then that's gets more complicated. But if you want to put a UPS in there, I, I'd be, if you're putting anything in line to the breaker, um, definitely bring a, bring a professional in for that. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, um, I was going to say that there are also like, they look like XLR. I, I apologize. I am not a lighting technician, but um, I know that there's power cables that are not your standard, you know, plug it into the outlet that are used in stage scenarios. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there are any UPSs that, yeah, that you would. It's the UPS to, part you know, that, that is hardest, you know, yeah. as far as getting that there, because you, you, you know, you got to put it on the power end. And that's why if you're going into a breaker, that'd be a little more complicated. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so when you were asking me about a grid, so I guess you were suggesting that I actually mount the UPS on the ceiling directly. No, no I didn't. Nope. I, okay. I, I, would, I would recommend having the UPS on the ground. The UPSs I use are, would be too big to mount on the ceiling. Um, so I, I start at the 1500 VA uh, UPSs. So I don't buy anything smaller than that because they have, um, they give me a little, they give me a readout on the front. The battery is removable and swappable so that you can, you can travel with them without them being connected. Um, and, um, and they last longer. <laughs> so, so anyway, and you can, and so, so I start with the APS, um, the, their UPS is the 1500 VAs with the, the front attack, you know, the front data, you know, uh, information there and I can turn them on and off, et cetera. Um, the, then what I would do is run the cables from there out into the lights. Um, and so I would run them up a corner of your whatever, and then run them across and then drop them down. But I definitely wouldn't put the UPS up there. I just put, I just put it somewhere that's compact. 
Um, uh, next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois, asking, I find vocal singing AI plugins both fascinating and concerning for the human vocal artist income, much like orchestral legal action against the use of Mellotron strings on recordings in the 1970s. Could AI voices face a similar response? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I remember those uh, those lawsuits. In fact, they had another one, and I'll get to it in just a second, uh, is uh, hand claps. You know, there was a time where a hand clap, the actuary were people that clapped their hands for a living. And when they were forced with the opportunity to be uh, let go for samples, uh, there was some lawsuits. So the only question here is how is the AI replacing uh, people's jobs? And I think we're sort of accustomed to these things now. So my guess is it's not going to be a problem unless they start sounding like a famous singer. Uh, go ahead, Nick. So every time I hear about the, you know, oh, this is going to replace people and how do we, you know, can we stop it? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And it's like, it doesn't matter. It's Pandora's box and it's open. Uh, you know, there was a time when uh, stock photography was done on film and you could get hundreds or thousands of dollars per stock photo, you know, and, and now everything's online and, oh, how do we stop this? Like, no, you don't. <laughs> Those, the, you know, the stock photography, film photographers, I mean, that's just not really a business anymore. Um, so I would imagine that copyright, does, you know, if you own a copyright and you can identify that a machine learning system has been trained using your copywritten or trademarked material, you should, in theory, be able to sue to uh, have that material removed from the library and also likely sue for damages and um, compensation for anything that was generated using that. The complex part of that is how do you prove that your copywritten or trademarked material is in you know, a private database that's never shared with anybody? So, um, you know, I, I can I absolutely see the concern, um, but you know, there's not much of a, you know, industry of people making buggy whips these days either. And so there's, I feel like these tools are a Pandora's box that's open and the, the most productive thing for, is for folks to, to learn how to leverage it and, uh, and move forward and, and find new things. Um, and, and you, so there's, there's my overall initial response. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. The legal uh, issues of, uh, samples, that's, uh, something that's been, uh, you know, bought, fought over and over again is taking samples from previous songs and incorporate them into your new song. So there's all kinds of stuff swirling around in the intellectual property world that uh, might come face to face with this. But I think we're a lot more used to it. I think it'll be it'll be difficult. The, the legal the legal challenges are going to be difficult because it's not sampling the information, whether it's imagery or audio or video, it's not sampling it exactly. It is looking at it <laughs> and, then, and then it's putting it back. It doesn't need to keep it. So it's as if you looked at it. We were talking about this in another forum and it's, it's and we should probably talk about AI about once a month right now because it's moving so fast. Like there's so much going on. So we'll probably have a second hour where we kind of just say, where, where are we now? Because something new drops, the new, um, you know, now there's, uh, uh, and I'm going to, forget what the name of it is, but there's, uh, we now have um, AI 3D modeling coming. Um, that's that's starting now. Well, sorry. NERF. Well, there's NERF. NERF. There's, well, well yeah. NERF is the capture of that, but there's actually, you can now type in, the, the stuff has started coming out just like with chat GPT oh. and, and so on and so forth. And um, it's early in the morning and I, my, my brain, because I haven't used it a bunch, is still thinking about it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, point E. Point E is the new one from... Um, 
this is the new one from OpenAI. And so you literally, when it's available, it's, it's, I think it's up at GitHub. I don't think they've actually um, made it, given it a public front end yet. But you can type in, I want a table you know, like this, just like you do with MidJourney, and it'll make you a 3D model of a table. Right now, that model is pretty rough, um, but it but it's going to get better. <laughs> like it's going to, you know, like it's going to, you know, like we're now at the 160 by 2, 160 by 120 pixel uh, image of, of, of what it's going to be able to do. Um, so, you know, we are going to get to a point where the computer is going to do a lot of things that were, um, th that we paid for in the past. Um, I think that, I think that it's absolutely correct. I think that the copyrights are going to be almost impossible to, to, to take to court. And the reason is, is that it's not really copying those things. It is, it is building a model that responds. It's people keep on thinking that it's copying some image, part of this image and then part of that image, or it's, doing that. It's just not doing that. <laughs> you know, it's building a model. And once the model's done, it can't take it out because it's like, is that, is that, I guess that falls under derivative works then? Not really. It's, it's as if you, mm -hmm. it, it, unless you do it exactly the way, the same way. But the problem is, is that I'm not, it's like, it's like I heard a song, I heard four songs and then I made a new song that doesn't sound like those four songs, but are inspired by it. Um, you know, they, like they, they have a feel that is like those things. And, and I'll tell you how popular that is. We often, for jingles and so on and so forth, will tell a composer, I want it to sound like this song, but not so close that I get sued. <laughs> like that is a derivative work, you know, and, 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 um, and if you don't use the same chord progressions, if you don't, but it's all some, oftentimes it's very slight, you know, that, that you're, that you're changing enough of it, that there's nothing that lays right over top of it. And so, um, so in that world, um, in the world that we already have proven that you can do that, that you can listen to a song, make a song that sounds similar to that song, but not that song. Um, you know, and, and we've been copying, artists have been copying each other since since they started drawing on, on the wall. So, so, so it's very hard to, um, you know, how do you say, you know, the, the impressionists all came, you know, a couple of people thought that they were going to do that. And then a whole bunch of people did it. Do all of those people owe that person something? And just because it's a machine, does that make it any different? Because the machine, again, is not copying and pasting those things in. And it doesn't know where it came. Like people keep on saying, well, it should be able to tell you all the references that, that are there. It doesn't know. It doesn't know. Like it it connected this to this and this to this and this to this. It doesn't, it didn't keep track of who, where it got all that information. So all these models are built around, they have no knowledge of that past, you know. And and when we we talked about like, oh, well, they should do, it should be like a, you know, like references in a manual. I was like, yeah, but that'd be like take, telling the writer, you have to list every book you read since you were six and every person you've talked to and every movie you've seen because that all built up to the book you wrote, <laughs> you know, like in addition to the references. And so that's the, that's the hard part with all of this stuff. I think that most likely you're going to see a lot more AI and it's going to do a, where I, where you don't want to be is something that's generalized. So what I wouldn't want to do to, to the, to what was talked about here is I wouldn't want to be in stock photography <laughs> because people are now going to get something a lot closer than, to what they want than they got with stock photography. But if you're a photographer for products, if you're a photographer for, if you're modeling things that are, you know, precision modeling, so on and so forth, you're not going to get affected by this anytime soon because it's going to take a lot longer for the, it to be able to do that. Um, I mean, you will maybe eventually, but I don't know. I've jumped from one industry to another for every, every year and a half to two years, I'm doing something different than I was before. So, so I, I you know, you just, you get kind of, you build up a muscle that is called, let's look at the new thing and figure out how we're going to make money with it. <laughs> and then when it stops making money, move on to the next thing. Yeah. The other thing is to replace artists, the um, client would actually have to be able to clearly articulate what it is they wanted to the AI. And that's also still a bit of a challenge. <laughs> a huge challenge. All right. Next question.
James Fosley from Minneapolis, Minnesota, <clears throat> excuse me, testing out the software synth phase plant that Alex mentioned in an earlier office hours is the base program, which is $99 half off enough. Well, I need some of the extra add-ons. Don't know yet. Uh, I haven't, you know, I opened up the demo and gone, wow, this is really great, but haven't really um, dug into it as deep because I just, you know, it, it, it literally is an app that's a little beyond me. And so we want to bring them in for a second hour. We probably want to do some labs. Is it watching someone who knows how to use it is just magic. Um, but but I, I have to admit that I can just make noises out of it that I don't, and I don't know exactly why I'm doing it. And I just haven't had spent enough time on it yet. Um, but it, it's really, it's one of the most impressive sound apps I've ever seen. Next question. Dan Shaw, Columbus, Ohio. Dan asks, we recently digitized 5,000 family photos and are getting through the sorting phase now. Any thoughts on how to future-proof the organizing of them so that what the family can enjoy and find out what they want? Apple Photos, Lightroom, plain old folder structure. Go, TJ. I would organize your photos, the physical files, physical, the digital files on your drives in folders with four-digit year, month, and then day, just to have a solid way to look them up. If your catalog ever fails you, uh, Apple Photos or Lightroom um, is a good place. You can keyword. Uh, Photo Mechanic is another. There's a, several other cataloging um, software bits out there. Just keep in mind is. Um, over the years, those catalogs may not to work. My main catalog uh, program doesn't work on my current Mac, so I have to keep an old pro, uh, Mac around just to run my catalog software. You go, Tim. Yeah, that's all good advice. I think I would just pick, um, you know, the year, the person, the location, and the event, and I would use Apple Photos and then share that photos to everybody and then have them kind of group source it. So as they have time, kind of dip in there and put some keywords in there. And, um, you know, eventually you'll begin to fill it out. But, you know, pick three or four things that you definitely want um, to have on there. And then eventually uh, you'll get that filled out and people will be able to locate them later. You know, it's, it's really interesting because we're, I'm thinking about this a lot. I've been talking, my, my, two of my sisters are photographers. My, my, my brother's a steady cam operator and there's me and, and all of us collect a lot of photos and of the families. And we've been talking about this a little bit when I was in Pittsburgh. And I think that one of the things we're, we're trying to figure out how to do it. Number one is scanners in a couple of different places. You, you're ahead of us there of being able to scan all these, anything from paper back into um, digital Here's the interesting thing is so you want to save it in two physical places and in the cloud. So two places that don't exist in the same, so not two drives in the same house, but have one person with one drive, one person somewhere else. If you can sync those, that's there's a couple different syncing programs that will let you keep on syncing them. And then sync that to the cloud. And that can be something like Backblaze. It can be something, it doesn't have to be something that's online. It just has to be somewhere that it's going to be safe there. Um, and then you can also put it into Apple Photos. The main the main problem is is that anything you put into a structure, you're you're you're, you're kind of tied into that structure. So as much as you can build, um, one of the things you we did a lot at ILM was build naming conventions that are are they, they don't look like anything as you put them in. There's there's dates. Um, there is, but you might have codes for different people in the family that you put in. Like these are the people that are in it. If the more you can put into the name, <laughs> the, the less chance of losing that. Whatever you put into that name, you're going to keep, right? You're, that's all that data is going to be there for you. Um, and then you can add metadata to it. You can add other things in the database. But if you lose it, you can say search for everything with TJ or everything with this. And that all that, that naming convention can support you with a simple grep. 
So, so that is a, it's a really powerful thing to do is put, to use up the naming conventions. And a lot of times we think of three or four characters, three or four characters per section and make it the same number so that when you search, you can just see the, the gaps and always use underscores, not spaces, never use spaces in your naming conventions. Um, and so, um, but, but if you do that, uh, you, you're going to have an easier time getting back to it. Um, the other thing is, is that I, I am starting to take my own photos and I'll do this with the family as well and I'm printing them so I'm printing them on uh, archive paper and then putting them into a folder that's going to be out of out of light we are probably going to be the most photographed and mo and least remembered generation because you know all this data just disappears you know and and so it's it's one of those things that you have to um, you know kind of kind of keep in mind go ahead Mitchell if you're doing a folder structure, is the 5.3 method still the required way to go? Or I mean, I, I have a lot of songs that I'm storing, and they've got the whole title in them. You know, the artist uh, dash, the title, there's no spaces. And I'm wondering if search uh, uh, ability in computers now have changed. Well, we still do a lot of that. I mean, you know, like the more data you can add into that name. I don't use dashes. I use underscores. But... Um, we used to use periods when we were doing Unix, but Windows hates that. <laughs> so, so, so we uh, we learned to use underscores. Go ahead, TJ. Uh, Windows has a 255 character maximum file yep. path limit. Yep. So, and oftentimes we use most of it. Uh, go ahead, Jesse. And with 5,000 photos, you do have the opportunity to uh, name a batch of 10 and then name a batch of 20 yep. and kind of build up into something that you find useful for the whole 5,000 group. Yeah, you can do renamers that 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 can do all kinds of very complex things to name to name them out. So also keep that in mind. It's a great great suggestion, Jesse. Next question, Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas, asking which is worse for electronic equipment: a very hard freeze or intense heat? Go, TJ. Heat is the enemy of all electronics everywhere. Everything is done to mitigate heat. Um, your electronics will work fine in the very cold. Today it's 23 degrees below Fahrenheit, or Celsius here in Minneapolis, and my camera will work just fine outside. The lens might take a little while to be ready. <laughs> yes, and let me just, uh, since it is that time of year, briefly, um, when you take something from extreme cold to heat, put it in plastic outside in the cold, cold air is dry air, and then let it warm up naturally, and you won't get condensation internally on the electronics. Yep, yeah, exactly, Mitchell. Yeah, when you get those molecules running around real fast in the, the material, uh, it changes the structure rather rapidly when you go to extreme cold from heat, and that's what causes things to fracture and break. Next question. Next question from Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA. What characterizes good photos or video to place on an LED wall or large television for a background for a talking head speaker? What designs work best? Also, natural-looking environments, and what should be avoided? Good, Paul. Yes, that's an extremely loaded question, but I'll try to be quick with it. For um, photo backgrounds, definitely take a person with you and have them step out of the frame just to make sure it looks realistic um, and take way more than you think you need. Uh, different angles, slightly different heights, things like that. Uh, for digital backgrounds that you're designing, uh, just keep in mind, uh, you don't want it to be too similar if you're going to be doing pips and there's an additional background. Uh, you want there to be a little bit of deviation between the two. Um, and then also just nothing too distracting because you still want the person to be the focus. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jesse. Uh, I'd, I'd go with stuff that is uh, muted colors, softer backgrounds, and uh, not not a lot of fast movement if you're doing video, so slower movement is good. And another thing you can do if you if you have the latitude to do this is kind of build your backgrounds and your overlays 
with the same aesthetic sense and that will that will help a lot go nick uh, in particular for photography, I would recommend shooting HDR so that you have room to really select the exposure range that you want to use. So you can compress that if necessary. So if you're shooting outdoor and you've got a lot of contrast between sunlight and shadow, if you shoot HDR, you can capture all the detail and both the sunlight and the shadowed areas and, and, and compress that so that you can get a, a pleasing image on the LED because the LED wall is certainly going to have less dynamic range than the real world. And, and so uh, using an HDR photography series and, and um, then manipulating that so that you're ultimately delivering a low dynamic range image to the LED wall is going to be useful. Yeah, the um, if you're using an LED wall, good luck. Um, you know, so if you're putting that behind somebody is specifically <laughs> like it's it's uh, it's usually not a great experience. Um, you're going to have to have a very fine pitch, usually less than 1.7 um, millimeters is about a, anything before. Uh, larger than that you really have to worry about your bokeh and blur it out so don't worry about too much detail in the background because especially with an led wall you're going to have to blur that wall or you're going to have all kinds of issues whether it's moray i mean even you look at something like thursday night football that that screen that they're standing in front of is horrible <laughs> just like you know like it's it's like it's great it's great production but but whatever they're doing that that, that pitch is about twice what it should be for, for that being that close to the talent and so um uh, so it, and it just has this kind of jagged look to it. Um, the Sunday morning shows are also really bad at that. Um, and they're, they're getting better. It looks like they upgraded some of their walls, but they're also pretty bad. You want it to be nice and smooth. Um, as far as taking pictures, one of the things, you know, obviously we like big outdoor things that you can't tell where the parallax is. If we're going to put something behind them that you might be able to see the parallax, we try to match the, we, we literally go out and match the same focal length that we had in the camera that we're using for the insert studio. So same camera height, same camera angle, same, you know, kind of the visual effects person coming into the, into the mix of, I want this to match up. And man, when you hit that, it looks amazing. Um, one of the things we've done for executives is we'll take a video camera and we go into their offices, it might be some big complex, and we literally just shoot 20 minutes of people walking back and forth and doing whatever they're doing, but it's the same camera we're going to use for them, the same height, same angle, same lens. And when you put it behind them, it just looks like they're sitting in the middle of their, of their offices, you know, coming to, coming to you from wherever it is. It's, it's a really immersive feel um, and safe because you don't actually have to have all those people around. Next question. Next question for Douglas Carmichael. What specific type and brand of camera is usually used for aerial work? Helicopters, fixed-wing aircraft, maybe even drones. When I look at the Sony FX range, for example, I don't see any mounting points on the camera body itself. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, the FX3, which I'm looking at right now, um, is too big for most drones. Uh, it wouldn't be too big for a helicopter, but if you're taking a helicopter, just about everybody uses a Westcam. If it's a drone uh, and you're shooting high-quality video, a lot of times it's going to be an Arri uh, Mini or LF. Yeah, and you can put any in, into some of those Westcams. You can put, put pretty much any camera in there. So it's there. These are big balls that sit in the front of the. You know, a, it's a huge ball that sits in front of a helicopter and it and it can move around and it's got and someone in the back of the helicopter you know operating it and so on and so forth and it works really well um funny thing just the the, the one note that i always think is funny every time i think about them now is we were shooting uh, world war ii fighter planes and um i was like how does the helicopter keep up when we're shooting the aerial shots i was asking them how does the helicopter keep up with the plane you know we've got you know we've got this you know this p51 going by and how do we shoot it he says oh we don't the plane goes in a circle and i was like oh 
like, like, like when you shoot when you shoot the the stuff in the sky, that the helicopter goes like this, and, and the plane just goes around the helicopter, um, and it's far enough away you don't see it. And it just uh, it, anyway, I just thought that was fun. <laughs> Next question, Guy Cochran from Seattle, USA. How do you find a device's IP address on your network? Go ahead, John. I use uh, IP Scanner Pro. Angry IP Scanner is another good one. Both really good programs. There we go. All right, we are jumping into our second hour, um, and we're really excited to talk about this. This is going to be something, so a mixture of LiDAR and photogrammetry is something that we are going to talk about at least once a month, um, just to let everybody know. Uh, Nick or or I or um, Fred, um, <laughs> let me see if I can get Fred on here, uh, are going to, we're going to talk about LiDAR at, at scale, big LiDAR, small LiDAR, how LiDAR is used, as well as photogrammetry. And the reason for that is, is that it's going to be really become more and more important in our, um, in what we're doing. Uh, so, so I think that, um, you know, we're going to have between AR, VR, XR, all these things, there's massive opportunities for us right now to, to take advantage of as a group. And we want to make sure that we're coming up to speed because we need in our in our group. We need every you know all these different skill sets to be able to interact. So not all of you are going to do this, but we need people who are going to be able to go out and capture something, go out and and um, and or build the models, or bring them in, or texture them, or all those things. And so we're really going to be working hard on that. And so I'm really excited to have Nick here. Um, and uh, Nick's the one of the people that I call <laughs> like when I'm trying to figure something out. And uh, and so um, it's really exciting to have you here, Nick. Do you want to give us a little overview of what you want to talk about? Uh, sure. Sorry, I couldn't find my unmute. Um, so the big deal that I think is amazing, you know, we there was a lot of uh, discussion back when the iPhones first started to have reasonably good quality cameras about, you know, what's the best camera to have with you or what's the best camera to use in a certain situation? And, and it's, well, the one that you have with you. And so uh, Pro iOS devices, this is a Apple, this is a uh, 14 Pro uh, iPhone. Uh, they have a LiDAR built into them. So in this cluster of lenses, there's also tucked away in there an infrared laser emitter. And that infrared light can uh, be projected out in a pattern and then measured by the lenses in the iOS device. And this uh, also works with uh, pro iPads as well. And that LiDAR allows for much more precise measurements than uh, photogrammetry approximation. Uh, the trade-off is we don't necessarily get as much detail in our textures per se, uh, but the resulting model is something that you, you can measure it. And it's if it's three feet wide in the model in your uh, LiDAR scan, it's it's three feet wide in, in the real world. And uh, now anywhere I am in the world, as long as I have my phone with me, I can scan anything. And so it can be to an acquire an asset and I can, I can share my... Um, I can share my screen here. I'm, I'm sending my iPhone screen to uh, NDI monitor on, on my Mac here so that you can see what's going on. So I'm using this uh, 3D scanner app um, right here, and it's a free download in iOS. Um, I, I think, you know, besides the fact that the technology is in there, the software is a built-in library in iOS. So there's a lot of different apps that uh, will leverage this. Uh, but if I go into that app, I can show, for example, that... Uh, 
here's a uh, here's a scan of of a chair, you know, at a, at a family member's house, right? And so this is uh, a chair that it's custom made. It's kind of cool, is because it's a bookcase chair and all that. And and so now I have this, and and if I wanted to say, you know, plan a shoot that's going to involve this, you know, I might want to know how how wide is it, and so I can call up a tape measure tool and and point out two different points and okay 38 inches wide so I, I know how to plan for that and as well as its height so now that I can start deciding about you know where I'm going to be placing my cameras and how high they need to be to get the angles I like so there's that um, you can also scan spaces so uh, I don't have it here in this phone I don't think let me just see if I do um, I, I do a bunch of things for a uh there's a, there's a conference that happens every year in the summer and I, I'm part of the planning group for that. And uh, so, you know, we went to Los Angeles convention center and started looking at potential spaces for where different uh, parts of the exhibition might be hosted. And so I could scan those spaces and plan potentially, you know, what types of, okay, what, what types of display can we put in here? And again, I, just walking through as a group in the conference center, uh, I could do this scan just like anyone taking photos, but now I'm getting actual 3D data. So I know that this space is 20 feet, 25 feet wide and 22 feet high. And so now I immediately I know, you know, oh, can I put an inflatable uh, projection dome into this space? Why? Why? Yes. Yes, I can. I know exactly where this is and what I can fit in there. So it, it's really useful for location scouting as well as uh, gathering assets. So um, I did a scan recently of this is uh, the mocap studio I was just talking about. And um, so I, I scan, this is another advantage to the uh, LiDAR, by the way, is that photogrammetry would never capture this green screen because it's just by definition a uniform green paint. There's really nothing for photogrammetry to identify on this screen what parts of the screen are different from the others. In fact, the uh, reflections, you know, the, these little highlights right now are the result of, uh, you know, light reflections. And so those would change and it would completely confuse anything that was uh, done with photogrammetry. But because LIDAR is projecting an infrared light pattern with, you know, an infrared laser, it's measuring that infrared laser pattern. It's not looking for landmarks uh, like different patterns in the carpet that uh, photogrammetry would uh be looking for. In fact, I think, let me just see if I can show you. Yeah. Okay. So here's a video of what was happening on my screen when I did this LiDAR scan. So I can hit play here and you just kind of point your camera like you would a uh, video. And then you'll start to see, um, it's kind of like Wiley Coyote painting a uh, tunnel on the side of a cliff, except you're, you're essentially painting the uh, scene around you. And so this is the geometry and this is in, in normal mode. You can you know, set uh, high resolution mode and things like that. But when I'm capturing a very large space like this, uh, I'll just, you know, aim everything. Uh, I'll just use the lower resolution and, you know, I can point, point this all around the space. Um, that's our little X-Wing fighter cockpit there in case of Imperial incursion. Um, but you can see how this is capturing the green screen, uh, even though there's no 
you know, image-based detail in it, you know, because it's, the, again, that LiDAR pattern. And the other thing I like about this, you know, when I'm capturing my studio is that, you know, there's some installed lighting already. So I'm capturing where those Kino lights are. And so I know where they are. And uh, I won't forget to, if I was drawing these notes, I might take a few measurements and draw a few things, but I might overlook, oh, where are the outlets? You know, so I can go into the system and, um, and you know, find those outlets based on the resulting scan. And so as this gets finished, um, you know, there I go. I'm just going to fast forward through here. Then there's a little bit of a processing step where it's already generated the geometry. While it's doing the LiDAR geometry acquisition, it's also shooting photos. And so then it goes to those photos and projects them based on where the camera was onto that geometry. And so one of the other nice things I like about this particular software is that I can export the full package of data from the uh, software. So there it is, there's the, the finished model. And so that's what the process looks like when you're actually using it. And um, I can hit pause on this. And if I go to the software itself, there's a little share button. And so I can export USDZ, uh, I can export FBX, uh, there's OBJ, um, but I can also export uh, basically everything, all data. There's an all data. Oh, wait a minute. I guess I, my uh, my screen sharing doesn't seem to be working. You're still seeing the, the processing things. Let me see if my, uh, my NDI broadcast stopped. So I'm going to stop that screen share and restart it and see if that helps. And, and once you start getting used to this, while, while Nick's working on that right there, um, once you start getting used to this, the other thing that you, you might do is you start doing it just all the time. So I use Polycam a lot, um, which is another another one that's like the 3D scanner that Nick has. And uh, one of the things we had to do is we had someone jumping out of a window and then they had to land on a pad. And I had to figure out whether the pad would fit or not. So I was at the gymnastics place looking at it. And I and I just walked around this, this, this uh, pad and just scanned it. Like I was like, oh, I'm just going to just grab this information. And so you can see that, you know, it's, is it all the data I could get? Probably not, but it's enough, you know? And so I was able to get the information and then, and then I can, you know, now start to do things like, you know, I could look at it and I could visualize it literally at the space, but I could also go, oh, I want to know what the distance is from here to here. We can talk about it, you know, so it's five, five feet, seven inches, <laughs> you know, or something close to that. And, and so I was able to kind of figure you know, figure that kind of stuff out very quickly. Um, so when you get somewhere, uh, it's a really powerful way to just know, especially when you're trying to fit things, um, is just to be able to fit things in really quickly. Yeah, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, so and I just wanted to show, you know, some of these other scans were done outdoors in, in sunlight. So um, just to show that even outside, you can use this. This is now on the iPad that I have here. And... Um, let me switch to a different shared screen. Let me see. Oh, I got a screen capture. And let me see here. I'll switch to my PC screen. There we go. So uh, this is in Maya now, right? So I've um, th this exterior is actually a drone flight uh, photogrammetry of the exterior of this building. Uh, but then I also have in this scene... Hopefully uh, we don't have a crash here. Uh, individual LIDAR scans of indoor uh, of the indoor spaces, right? So if I, if I select this building, I think I can uh, 
make it transparent. There we go. And so there are, uh, an, each one of these rooms is a LiDAR scan done with the iPad. And so I've got this entire interior space as well. And, um, all of those individual models can be uh, now. Did you scaled. did you do each room so by itself and then compile them together, or did you do it all at one one yes. fail swoop? Yes. Yeah. Each. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, definitely each room individually. There are. I mean, it's a the iPad part of the um, lidar calculations. I believe it is using the IMU as part of the data, and so there can be drift. You know, so the longer that you're scanning in terms of period of time and walking around with your device, um, the further you go, the more potential for error. So this isn't like a Leica professional LiDAR that is just absolutely precise down to less than a million. Oh, so jealous. You have to tell me the next time you're in Pennsylvania with that thing. I, I like, please, please. I was just talking about it earlier, about like, is that, that's like a $20,000 instrument, isn't it? I, I got it for a little How less. How many Alex? I got it used. So, so, um, so it, it didn't, it didn't cost 20 grand, but yeah, these are, these, this is the bigger version of, of that. And so this is what this does is this has a, a, a mirror that spins and it fires the laser out and goes out. Now it captures about a million points a second. And it just slowly moves around. Now I have it set at a fairly coarse setting because I use this mostly not for really building models, but to just get information about a scene. So it's like what Nick's doing, except it just gathers a lot more data. Um, and I'll walk around and do five or six scans, but I want them to be four or five minutes each so that it doesn't take me, you know, even that's going to take an hour to do a big room. Um, and so, but once you grab all of that information, your plus or minus a very small amount, um, this will go out. I mean, it, it's it, the thing you have to remember about LiDAR in general, and this is with the phone, as well as with the um, any kind of LiDAR that you send out, is that you have to remember that the point that you're working with is here. And it's, so it's, it's gathering, let's say, you know, a whole bunch of points are really close together, really near the LiDAR, but you have to remember that it's, it's projecting outward like this. So if you take each one of these points and project outward, those points are a lot further apart as they get as they go further away. So it can, it's grabbing a grid. That grid becomes less and more and more coarse. The distance between those dots gets a lot further as it goes away. The iPhone is typically about 25, 30 feet is the absolute max. And then it just doesn't go any further than this. The LiDAR I have will go a couple hundred feet. But the accuracy and the density at a couple hundred feet is, is much lower than it is nearby. So it's really really designed for less than 50 feet, in my opinion, 50 to 100 feet. Um, then there are bigger LIDARs um, like the ZNF and Pharos that are that are going to capture a lot more data or and other bigger light, um, Leica makes larger ones of these as well. So, um, so anyway, so yeah, so that's, and those like, are like a, like also makes drones, right? So you can have a drone scan a building and it'll do it in an automated fashion. I think, so I think DJI has it as well. And those are slightly different mm -hmm. because those are, those are flash LIDAR. So those are taking pictures one at a time. This is what the cars use. Vellum, uh, I think it's Vellum, Vellum uh, makes the, makes most of the ones that people use uh, for those. Um, but the, yeah, the drones have, you know, are able to correct for them, for themselves, you know, there. Um, and, and so we also, we also, we, I think that one of the reasons I wanted to show this and just, and I don't, I realize I don't have, know if I have any, I, I move computers. I don't have an E57 viewer. <laughs> so, I, so I gotta, I gotta reinstall that. But the, the reason I wanted to show this and talk about the larger LiDAR is we often don't want to overrepresent what the camera can do. Like the phone does a great job and you can do really cool things, but it's not the same as, as having something that gathers that much data and we're gonna in the future we're gonna bring uh fred on with his pharaoh and talk about 
you know, those those LIDAR systems. But the phone is in your pocket, as Nick, Nick said. You can get, if you look at what Nick's doing right here, if we cut to what Nick is, is showing, it's it's pretty impressive. Um, you know, like it's an, an enormous amount of data, especially for planning um, and figuring out what you're going to do. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, uh, so I was just going to say that th this entire house, uh, which is you know, it's essentially a mansion, um, was scanned in a single afternoon, maybe hour and a half or so with the iPad. And so, you know, I could do selection highlighting here. So you can see how I would do different chunks. Like, so this, this room in the middle is actually a little bit of a indoor garden uh, atrium. And so I would scan different zones of that uh, individually, uh, separate from the staircase and all of that. So this is how you could see how I kind of sliced up the house. Um, one did other you, thing and is- And did you bring it all back together automatically or did you do it by hand? I, I did bring it back together by hand. Mm -hmm. So um, the the scaling is already done, but it's just a matter of saying, okay, I'm going to make the, the corner of this doorway my pivot point for these two different models, bring those pivot points together and then and then rotate. So it, it, it doesn't take long, uh, but but it is something that, you know, I'm sure a ML system could, you know, use machine learning to, to speed that up. But yeah, but the overlap is really important. You just have to think when you're doing these digitizations, whether it's with a big LIDAR or with a phone, you have to think about what is overlapping and what can see the uh, the same points. You want to be able to see a lot of things that are the same points. Um, there are programs, Autodesk makes a program called Recap um, that will do a lot of that stuff for you. Um, but uh, but you can do it by hand and it's not that hard to do by hand as long as you make sure that you have a, a good overlap. Absolutely. So you could see, for example, in, in this particular room that I deliberately made sure to capture like through this doorway and out into the floor. And similar, this captures through that same doorway a little bit. Um, and, and, and there's you know, one of the most yeah. popular places for me to put uh, my scans is in the doorway. So, so I'll scan a room and then I'll scan a doorway mm -hmm. and then I'll scan a room. And then now I know I have plenty of overlap between those, you know, those pieces. Yeah. And so then I can show what that particular scan looked like. You know, I'll switch over to my iPad now. So this is that room uh, scanned in, in the iPad. And so it's using that, that scanning 3D scanning app. And then the other thing that's interesting, again, is that um, this has... Uh, oh, wow. Look at that. There's some record scan video. Record a video of your scan. That's kind of cool. Um, view scan images. So while the LIDAR is going, it's also shooting these photos. And so well, they're all, this, this is showing. Yes. Okay. So these, these can be exported. And so then these images can be used for photogrammetry if I had wanted to. Now that this is a low light scenario, so the iPad camera didn't do too great. They're kind of a little bit grainy and all. But in this case, this particular scan was also automatically capturing, in this case, 481 images just for this scan. And so these can be processed by something like capturing reality uh, or recap photo or Agisoft, whatever. So uh, the two technologies, LIDAR and photogrammetry can be combined in these ways. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a really, the real power is going to be as the mixture of photogrammetry and LIDAR continue to evolve because the LIDAR structured light gives us really hard numbers that we know match up in the 
um, and the unstructured light being photo uh, photogrammetry gives a lot more detail, not just in the textures, but in the geometry, because you're essentially only limited to, um, with photogrammetry, you're only limited to the resolution of your camera and how close you were to the object. Um, there's no, um, you can get an incredible amount of data out of them, but it, it's just not as accurate. And so the, the LiDAR gives us that back. Yeah. And so like this space is like thousands of acres. So this is a, a botanical garden in the Philadelphia area. And so it features indoor conservatories and outdoor uh, garden spaces and, and fountains and such. And so over the course of many visits, uh, I was able to use this one iPad to scan a load of these uh, locations and, and spaces. And uh, I, I don't have it open right now in on my machine, but uh, literally building or built a, a full Unreal Engine scene that is all of these interior and exterior spaces. And you can actually walk around in the um, conservatories and you know exit the conservatories and see the fountain garden and all of that. And so we use the scans as a basis for the what we call clean 3D models that are then used in virtual reality. Like the, the density of these models is a little too high to use in a virtual reality experience, but the, um, the data can be used. We essentially trace it. It's like putting a piece of tracing paper over a photograph to, to make a drawing. Um, we will use this as a 3D guide and uh, make sure that, you know, we get everything placed accurately. And, you know, we're at the very beginning of this, but these 3D guides, you're going to be able to scan something with your phone and then use AI to say, this is a wall, this is a window, this is whatever. And it'll use the information there eventually to rebuild that in a relatively clean and high, you know, powerful way. So a lot of this is going to get exciting times <laughs> possibly oh, yeah. in the Chinese I mean, curse sort of way but but exciting times as as, as uh that that it's um things are going to be moving pretty fast uh, we got we got a bunch of questions stacking up nick do you, do you have anything last things or do you want to jump into them? no that's that's the that's the things i was going to hopefully show to kind of that's seed great. the conversation yeah mitch, mitch do you have, did you have something to kick off before we yeah get you just started touching on it how does all these uh different scans have a situational awareness so you can stitch them together again how does everything know the scale and position so that when you build that house that you can put the shell of the house over top of all those individual scans? Yeah, go ahead, Nick. So currently, I'm mainly using a manual process where, as Alex was mentioning, I'm really diligent about making sure I scan the doorways, all the doorways. And that's going to be the interface between the next room on the other side of that doorway. So that the, the width of that door is exactly the same on both sides and the position of that door is exactly the same on both sides. So uh, what I can do in uh, Maya, or it could be done in Blender or Cinema 4D or whatever, um, you could take the two different models and say, I want the pivot point of both of these models to be the this corner of this door. And it's the same door in both models. So then those two pivot points can be brought together. And then it's really just a matter of rotating everything so that the floors line up and then, and then you're done. So, I mean, once you've gotten the hang of it, it, it takes no more than a couple of minutes to really get that squared away. The, in terms of the scaling, that, that's the great thing about LiDAR is that it's structured light so that the iPad knows and the, or the iOS device, the iPhone, whatever it knows that the dimensions, you know, it, I don't know if it's accurate, depending on the size, it might be accurate pretty close. a centimeter or two. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very close. I mean, anything I've spot checked with this thing, you know, if I measure out three feet and I use a tape measure and I use the, the LIDAR, I get three feet on both. Um, so 
it's because that that projection pattern of the LiDAR laser is known to the device. And so it's calibrated, it knows what's going on. And so if if two of those hits are a certain distance, both in Z away from the device, as well as uh, left to right, it knows exactly what that distance is. And so uh, that actually is one of the steps that with photogrammetry has to sometimes be done a little bit more manually where you either leave something that you know as a, a measure reference. So now you've got to lay down, you know, some kind of calibration target in your photogrammetry um, to, in order to make sure the scale is accurate. But with LiDAR, the scale is already determined by the uh, LiDAR transmission. Let's go to the first question. First question in from Bob Sturdivan in San Antonio, Texas. What are the best practices on doing internal scans? Shouldn't we use a tripod that we move to at least two vertical positions at every horizontal position so we get the undersides and overtops of structures? Or is that overkill? Uh, go ahead, Nick. So with the LiDAR scan, um, it's actually building that scan through the movement of the this projector so you could imagine it as a, a projector instead of uh, a camera and wherever that projection cone hits that's been scanned and now you can just continue to move that projector and pivot it around and you can lower it and raise it and the benefit of all of that is where photogrammetry is only capturing an individual image every time you release your shutter lidar is constantly uh, measuring and updating its data. So rather than using tripods, I just move very, very slowly, you know, so that I, ideally the images don't end up getting blurred. Uh, but if I'm going to capture the underside as well as the top side of something, I'm just moving that iPad or phone very slowly around that space and it's capturing throughout that activity. And you can see again from the, um, in the software, you could see the model being built over top of the uh, the video feed. So that's that would be the best practice there. And of course, we've talked about making sure that if you're going to do multiple scans, make sure that you've got you know a, an interface between the two scans where both scans have scanned the same exact thing that you can easily line up later. And you know there are tripod-based ones as well. Matterport uh, makes makes a um, a pretty great one for real estate. I've owned a mat the old hardware Matterports, and then Matterport also integrates with the BLK three hundred and sixty that I have, as well as they have a phone rig <laughs> that you can use. And so they've they've kind of gotten past their own hardware and really built a platform that people can use for that. In fact, I think that. I saw it go by and I haven't tested it, but the Insta360, um, I think the R2s will integrate with Matterport as well, and they'll use photogrammetry to put those back together. And so there's a lot of different options um, um, as you go down that path. And so uh, there, you're absolutely right. Anything you can't see from the camera is not going to be something that you capture. <laughs> it's a shadow. It's literally a geometric shadow uh, that you'll see coming out of these things. But as Nick said, with the phone, you can walk around. If you walk around too much, it will lose calibration with itself, and suddenly you'll start to see these rifts that appear in the in the capture and so your nick is exactly right that you want to capture lots of small pieces that you're not moving around a lot and then clump them together as opposed to trying to walk around. i've done it where i've tried to walk around an area and you get something <laughs> you know that's, that's there but but the accuracy starts to fall apart um, next question James Fosline from Minneapolis, Minnesota. How can you best combine the structured light of LIDAR with the unstructured light of photogrammetry? I go ahead, Nick. So uh, it you know depends on the, the level of detail that you're capturing and such. Uh, you can combine them. Uh, they're 
the reality capture software, capturing realities or capturing realities company and reality captures the software. So it's the, the full desktop version of their software is capable of doing a more automated combination of those. So you can do a, a LIDAR scan and use that as you know your basis for scale. And then you can do a photogrammetry result and load both results as models into uh, the reality capture software. And then you identify reference points. So if, you know, for example, that office room, I might say that, okay, there's three or four corners on this desk. And so here are the vertices that represent those four corners in 3D space for the LiDAR scan. And here's the vertices from the photogrammetry result for that same exact desk. And again, it's not just that they're they're points, but they're points in 3D space. So once capturing reality has those references, uh, it can then basically merge the two results and attach them to one another. And even better, you can um, actually take, like if you're, let's say you did your photogrammetry with a really nice digital SLR and you were shooting raw. So you've got lots of rich detail in your photogrammetry textures. You can then bake those textures from the photogrammetry results down onto the LIDAR model, uh, which you potentially use as ground truth in terms of uh, scaling. So reality capture is a great tool for, for doing all of that. Um, or, you know, if you don't have all of that, um, you can also just use any uh, 3D editing app like Blender, uh, Cinema 4D, Maya, et cetera. Yeah, and and the um, a lot of times you're going to end up rebuilding a lot of those things. So the photogrammetry is rarely what we use in production i mean at least that's what we've for, mo for the most part we use it to gather a lot of data um where we do use the photogrammetry oftentimes is with organic stuff or stuff that would be very very hard to you know model um and and if you can get enough data you can do a lot with it um, but i think that the merger of photogrammetry and lidar has just begun and we're going to see over the next five years everything is going to do both because they they both add something to the to the model uh, next question Next question in from Brian Schwartz in Baltimore, Maryland. I would like to create a 3D rendering of a small village of 200 to 300 buildings. I can use a DJI, a DJI drone and an iPhone. DJ. Could photogrammetry, DJ. DJI, sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's a common mistake. Uh, could photogrammetry play a role? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Nick. Sorry, <laughs> I probably should have pushed the hand button. Uh, the uh, absolutely, you know, I mean, especially the exterior of the buildings to get the tops of those buildings. I mean, you would absolutely use a drone so that uh, you don't have to go clambering around on scaffolding. One of the things to think about is that you'll be tempted to think about doing something with a drone where you're going back and forth, and you can do that but you're not going to get a lot of the side angles. So if you're doing landscape, you can oftentimes get away with it. In fact, um, there's a thing that will, a company that will bring on at some point called Drone Deploy. And they literally, you can just turn your drone on and just, it'll just go. And it just goes up and it just starts making, just, just building a grid pattern. It just, it just goes, and, you, and it's funny because you just watch it, you see your drone going, and it just, it, I did a whole golf course that way. <laughs> so, and um, so that kind of thing it's built for and it does it really well and it's, they use it a lot for that. Um, one thing you want to think about is um, doing that, and Drone Deploy allows you to do this as well, um, but you can also have other apps, and I think DJI does, DJI does it now, which is that you can pick a house or pick a location and let it sweep around it. And so if I was really doing this in detail and I had the time, I would just sweep, or, you know, just constantly be sweeping around um, 
uh, each house, you know, and you'll get a lot of data for each house because you want it to get low, high, you know, you can build kind of a little grid in some of these that you can say, I want to do one, one that's at certain heights. Obviously you want to go too low, you run into other buildings, but, but the, but, uh, but you have, you, you can gather a lot of that data and then fill it in with the ground. Now, if I was doing something that, so that's how the photogrammetry can work there. The big thing is have a lot of batteries. Remember that you have to have enough batteries that the that the one gets fully charged by the time the next, you know, so usually four to six batteries you can you can keep, you know, just and you can kind of have this virtuous circle. Um, and the other thing that we do is I build a platform for it. So I have like a three by three foot platform that has kind of soft edges that can land easily. Um, just so I just know where it's at rather than having some random thing, I just give it a place to go, you know, to, to land. Um, and uh, if you really want to get, if you want to be high productive, get two drones. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're constantly running and then start to build up a plan for how to do those. Um, the other thing that I would do in a village is I would rent a LIDAR. Like I rent um, either a BLK 360, but probably more like a Faro 350 and um, go along, the, go down the streets. And if, you, and if, depending on how big the village is and how busy it is, go down right down the middle of the street, <laughs> you know, and just grab that or go down each sidewalk and you grab all the fronts, all of, of each one. Um, but that'll cost you thousand dollars. A, a 350 will cost you with all the software, probably a thousand bucks a day without the operator and day of training, you can probably do what you need to do. Um, but the thing is, is it'll save you so much time. <laughs> like having having big clean data would be would be a thing to think about. Next question. Oh, go ahead. Next Actually, before before we jump to it. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I, I guess it's you know if you're making a 3D rendering too, is to probably leverage photogrammetry more for the areas where you're going to be placing those rendering cameras, right? So the the photogrammetry is going to give you better fidelity in terms of the texturing detail. And so, you know, if you're going to have a camera position that's in the street, you'll want to do photogrammetry of a patch of the street. And if it's going to be a 3D rendering, you might only need a portion of that street that then you can duplicate in the uh, 3D software that you're using or create a, a material that includes displacement, et cetera, so that you can be efficient about the 3D model that you're creating. So uh, that was the only thing I was going to add. And you have two issues is that a lot of times later, you're going to have to either increase resolution in some places and then decrease the resolution overall. Because remember that if you put it into a phone and you want to say, oh, I want to be backwards compatible to, let's say, an iPhone 10. Um, you're looking at wanting to limit what what's going into that phone at any given time to about two million polygons, and um, you know there's a lot of different efficiencies of that. Uh, one of the things we're watching a lot is the nanite um, progressions within within Unreal, um, but there's a lot of other efficiencies that are kind of being built up around that. Um, let's go to the next question. Colin McCaughey from Dublin, Ireland asked, using iOS LiDAR, has anyone used Matterport Access to record and create a dollhouse walkthrough? Any tips on best approach to doing this? Go ahead, Nick. Uh, so, I, you know, I think Matterport would probably be overkill for a dollhouse. I, I don't know how, like, you could certainly put it next to the dollhouse and, and it would be able to scan into it a well, little bit. You know, the, the Matterport Axis is the one that the iPhone sits on. So it's like a little tiny setup that you could do. It's not the bigger Matterport, but mm, so okay. I, I didn't, I, I've never thought of that. But when I read it, I was like, hmm, that, that'd be interesting. <laughs> Yeah, if, if I, I'm also dollhouse, curious. Big I've never done, you know. There's those long uh, periscope cameras, you know that that you know that people do those like bullets through the objects kind of shots, mm -hmm. and it's it's basically this long snoot. And so I would picture, you know, you know, 
pushing one of those into each room so you can get a few different angles uh, or even just something like a little GoPro kind of camera. I don't know how big how this dollhouse is, but you know, if you, you can get a small camera and you can just have it set to time-lapse photography. So it's automatically well, shooting a, a new photo. Model, I think that it, I'm assuming that you're talking about a pretty big dollhouse because you have to be able to fit the, 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 the thing in. The thing to think about is a lot of times when I'm looking at a room, even a, a big room or a little room, I probably want a point here, a point here, and a point at the door. You know, like that'd be my minimum capture is like two points that, that are kind of, you know, the, with the axis, you're doing a circle, right? So you have one here, one here, one here. If it's a complicated room, you might have more. If you look at Matterport's website, you'll see that they'll put, you know, any point of interest, they'll start to add those things to it. So, but but that would be the first thing that I would do. <laughs> if you do something, we'd love to see an image of it because I would. I, I never thought of a dollhouse as a Matterport project. Um, next question. I'm just going to... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. What are you saying? I was just going to note too that like with a dollhouse, you only have three walls, a roof, and a ceiling, right? So there's no fourth wall. It's it's like scanning a, a theater stage, mm-hmm. um, at least as, as I'm picturing it. So you could capture, depending on how much furniture you placed in it, I mean, I, maybe the better solution would be clear out the furniture, photograph the empty room, and then uh, photogrammetry the furniture. The furniture is going to probably be too small for LiDAR to be effective with. Mm-hmm. But if you photogrammetry that furniture, then you know the resulting 3D model you could furnish. And then the only other thing I was going to add, incidentally, is that um, this is it's used a lot in, in feature films uh, and other and, and video game 3D scenarios. Is that in, that 3D model of of basically a cube with a missing fourth wall can actually be baked to a two and a half D single texture that gets mapped into 3D space. And so you could literally put this this two and a half D image onto a single flat plane. And essentially it's it's camera projection done on a per plane basis. And so as the viewing camera moves around, it actually reveals the sidewalls, the the roof, the floor, et cetera. But it's all baked into a single material. And so like when Spider-Man is is webbing through a city at night, you know, and you you get the sense of parallax in each room and meeting rooms and apartments and all that in those background buildings. But those rooms are not individually modeled. That's just a, a specialized material texture shader that's adjusting the, the parallax. And, and you could do and it was I, funny. I just, that, was a, that would be another sp- thing to do. The Spider-Man was a big jump forward because a lot of us would build little boxes, but it was just an enormous number of polygons. And so the big thing that Sony Imageworks figured out was, oh, we could just do it. We could just do a texture <laughs> and put it on a plane and just do it exactly what Nick was talking about, camera map it. And so that you could see what you needed to see. That, that's probably a whole nother second hour. Uh, next question. Bob Sturdivan from San Antonio, Texas is asking, has anyone combined outside scans with internal? I tried with Pix4D years ago using a drone and a handheld and during the internal walkthrough with mixed results. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, so I mean that's exactly what I was showing a little bit earlier, where uh, the exterior of that house uh, was scanned with drone. Um, and I've also done for exterior spaces, I'll I'll do a drone flight to get overall layout, and then go in closer with lidar to walk around and get uh, better measurements of where everything is laid out, and so combine them. Uh, again, you can use capturing reality or uh, 
I tend to actually use uh, Maya is my go-to solution because sometimes photogrammetry, depending on the angles that you're getting and how high you flew the drone, you might get a little bit of kind of optical distortion out of that model, especially as you might scan one space and, and you know, some of the things, instead of being perfectly vertical, like some of the walls kind of bend away from the drone. So, um, you know, by going into a 3D app like Maya, I could bend things back into place from the photogrammetry scan and and so that all can be combined and um and then the final solution is then to go in there and essentially you know remodel or create clean models of everything so rather than end up using the final result of the photogrammetry or lidar scan i'll then create a low polygon model of that wall and then the finishing touch is, you know, that photogrammetry result and both both the LIDAR and the photogrammetry result can be lined up with the camera images that were taken during those sessions, right? So that in the 3D tool, like Maya, um, you could have camera positions for every photograph taken. And then those cameras can project the image that they represent onto the new clean geometry. So now you've got this low polygon wall with arches, etc. Uh, but the detail of the vines growing on that wall and the limestone seams and all that could be projected from the image onto that geometry. And then you've got a finished model that's really efficient to use in 3D apps. By the way, uh, Colin McKay got back to us. The dollhouse is not an actual dollhouse. It's a term used to describe a 3D model that you can embed on a website. Um, and in general, we've used Matterport. I've just used Matterport service. I didn't know what it was called, but I use Matterport service that will do that. Um, and again, to go back to the, the what you were talking, what we were talking about earlier is, yeah, you want to probably minimum of two points, something in the doorway. And you'll see if you look at Matterport examples, they'll mostly be that way. The only other reason you put more of them in is if you're trying to show off more of the places. I want to show you the closets. I want to show you this. I want to show you that. You might scan more more locations, um, but it just it all comes down to also time you know how long it takes to do it let's go to the next question next question in from steve uroff in madison wisconsin steve wants to know if one wanted to document a model railroad approximately 100 square 120 square feet would you turn to lidar or photogrammetry good nick uh so i you could probably use lidar if you're, we're talking about g gauge uh, as as a way of getting good measurement, and you could you would capture your track paths and and g gauge trains are uh, large enough that you could get a decent kind of at least shape result from from lidar. But anything smaller than that, if we get into o gauge or h uh, uh, ho, um, then lidar is not going to be particularly effective because you know at, at ho i mean your your rails of the track alone are, are like you know only a millimeter or two apart and uh, not apart but but in in width so uh, that's where photogrammetry is is really going to be useful uh so i think that uh if you want to get you know good uh, the the better results will come from photogrammetry in that scenario, uh, but again, if you have G gauge, if you have that, well, then you know, lidar might be a good place to start, and then supplement that with photogrammetry. Yeah, the um, I, it, I like model trains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I uh, I did I did did a little photogrammetry from um the Pitts, Pittsburgh Science Center has a great um during Christmas has this incredible um. Uh, train set that they that they built and i did little pieces of it just to see what i could do as well as a couple other little camera shots there um by hand i didn't it's not like i got a bunch of approval i just <laughs> walked through and took pictures um but that was a de over a decade ago i probably go back and do it now with something bigger um 
the big advantage of a model, model railroad is you can get over it. So if you can get over that, um, 120 square feet isn't that big. So you can probably get some vertical, um, you know, location, you know, get up over it and then get lots of those different angles. The thing that I would do is any object that I could take off of it, like the, like the cars and the, and the locomotives, I would build each one of those with their own as an object photogrammetry. So I would sit there and put them and what you would do is put them on a stick. So they, they're, they're a stick or some kind of little platform that is as small as possible that you have them up and kind of lit the, either the, you know, kind of, I would try to light them in a neutral way and then take a bunch of photos, you know, of those. And then you're going to get great photogrammetry out of that. Um, you know, so you treat each one of those as a model. And then the overall thing I would absolutely use, uh, almost 100% use photogrammetry for this. I might use LiDAR to, to get, as Nick said, structured light so I know what the scale is. But I would, outside of that, I would, almost anything small, I would use photogrammetry for. And I think you'd probably get a lot of detail. It sounds like a really fun project. to Go ahead, Nick. Uh, I was just going to add, you know, there's another technology that maybe we should do a second hour on sometime. And, and that is like, there are other structured light scanners. Um, I have a iScan uh, Ein scan HD pro, for example. So it's handheld. It, uh, it kind of looks like a toner cartridge for mm. a printer, like a really big toner cartridge, but it has a structured light projector inside it. And so it can get very high resolution scans of very small things. And, um, often they're used in engineering scenarios where uh, someone need, wants to reverse engineer a part. So if you if you wanted to build a new part for a damaged antique train engine, you would take the damaged piece and scan it with this and then, you know, work out whether you're going to use CNC or manual machining to, to recreate that part because the, the blueprints aren't around anymore. Um, so uh, that, by the way, the, I think the Einscan HD Pro is in the six to $7,000 range, if I remember correctly. So it's in between just uh, photogrammetry and uh, LiDAR. And it's it's really effective for objects. I've, I've seen an engineer like scan a tire and it can pick up the, the relief, you know, text that, that, you know, you could feel on the side of the tire. Um, and we've used it for museum pieces and, and things like that. And so that might be another area to go in. So if, if you really want like a professional scan of a train set, I think what I would use is something th along those lines uh, for that. Uh, and maybe, and probably combine that with photogrammetry, which again, you can, you can do this super high resolution extremely accurate dimensionally uh, scan with a structured light scanner and then also shoot photogrammetry to get better fidelity and detail in the texturing and then combine those and in, in capturing reality or Maya and and get some really fine results. And, and at the rate that Nick and I are answering these questions, um, yeah, we're not going to get to the end of them um, by the end of the hour. So your voting is really, really important. So make sure to look at those questions if you're watching right now and uh, vote those questions up or down um, based on what you'd like to see us talk about before we get to the end. Um, let's go to the next question. Tommy Shantz from St. Paul, Minnesota. He's got a question. What are the size and distance limitations with LiDAR? I'm interested in smaller, not necessarily macro sizes scan. Um, example, Christmas cookie size. Mm. I go ahead, Nick. Yeah, so I mean, Christmas cookie size is exactly the sweet spot for something like the Einscan HD Pro. Uh, that that That's exactly what I would reach for if I was scanning a Christmas cookie or dollhouse furniture or something like that, because it can capture that level of detail very, very well. There are also Arctic... Uh, 
handheld laser scanners and the the laser projection from that looks kind of like the the uh, lasers at the checkout counter that you know crisscross in every different direction so they make sure they get that UPC code on the side of your products. Um, but that laser scan then uh, can be high fidelity. But my experience is that those that the handheld structured light um, is really, really nice. So that's what I would go to for that. And and I and I would say that so based on some some experience that I've had recently, I would, I would, if I had, depends on what kind of phone you have, but what I will say is that I and now I'm gonna have to do this. So I, I will work on this between <laughs> I'm gonna have to do it because it's such a great idea. Uh, the 48 megapixel raw image from the iPhone works exceptionally well as photogrammetry. So um, you have a phone now that'll shoot 48 megapixels, and you know shooting that that cookie, um, and, and which I'm now going to have to do um, is um, I think that photogrammetry would work really well here as well. You'd get an because you're limited. You have such a small amount of detail with with the right camera. You could probably get the grain of the cookie, you know, on it. You know, so it's it's going to be an enormous amount of data. Um, it's there now. I'm going to have to do that, uh, Nick. Yeah, I was also going to add that the you know newer and pro level iOS devices have a selection of lenses to choose from, and so you can use and you, know, you can use a longer lens to get in more detail the, from a better distance. And it is the lens. one problem with it is is that it uh, doesn't like anything that's computational. Well, MetaScan or, or Meta MetaShape, which is what I use. Uh, does not like you to change the focal length, and it, what it doesn't really doesn't like is if if the iPhone um, changes focal length while you're shooting, which it wants to do automatically. So you can't use the off-the-shelf photo app that Apple gives you because it's constantly changing lenses and it's constantly making calculations and it's constantly building a photo for you. So you have to lock it. Um, I'm testing Halide right now to see if I can't lock it into the RAW, and I'm still having trouble with that. I literally am thinking of writing an app. Just like learning how to write an app, just so I can have one that's called 48 megapixels, and it just does one thing. <laughs> like, like I will not change a lens. I will not do this thing just so I can do photogrammetry because I can't find an app that just was said, just goes. I want the 48 megapixel. Never change the lens. Never do anything else. So let me know if someone else finds that. Let me yeah. know because. I can't lock it. I, I guess to directly answer the the question, what are the size distance limitations of LiDAR? I, I would say, you know, if, if it occupies three foot by three foot space, you know, the container of that uh, LiDAR can be effective with that. Yeah, I think that the setting in the 3D scanner app is like down to a two millimeter resolution. So mm -hmm. just know that that's kind of like the, the finest level of detail geometrically that it can get. And that's like, it's pushing its luck there. And again, you uh, can get, yeah. laser scanners that, that there's a lot of different laser scanners turntable laser scanners there's the ein you know what is it einscan einscan um einscan yeah it turns out there's a question on that later yeah, on so, we'll so we'll get, if, if we manage to make it yeah so make sure yeah. to vote on these questions right now because we're not going to get to all of them uh, but what we will be talking about lidar and photogrammetry again next month next question paul terry wallace from austin texas paul has a question how good is the dji drone for doing indoor and outdoor lidar scans I've never used one for the outside. Um, the uh, the inside one, the, or I'm sorry, inside, I mean, the outside one is getting better. Um, the big problem that you have is that you ha it has to correct for the fact that it's in the wind. And so it's calculating what the distance is and then making corrections against that. Um, you know, I, I, it, I found it to be useful. I have to admit, from my experience, I would rather use photogrammetry from the drone than the LiDAR. The LiDAR has been relatively, ac it's very accurate. Um, but the density has not been very high. Um, next question. 
Next question in from Douglas Carmichael. Nick, I'm very impressed with the scans from the reality scan. Can Unreal Engine or Unity work best with building scenes based on them? Go ahead, Nick. So, uh, yes, um, the, so reality scan is inside Unreal Engine's ecosystem and it, it dovetails with, uh, the Nanite technology that, uh, Alex mentioned, which is a GPU optimized method of processing high density geometry, right? So your LIDAR scans, your photogrammetry results get a lot of pop polygons could be millions of polygons and uh they named it nanite but unreal engine can ingest those high detail scans and utilize them and it's leveraging the the processing capability of rtx uh, gpus to optimize like okay i don't need the hundred thousand polygons that are in the distant background and i'm going to abstract those to a couple polygons uh, but these you know few thousand polygons really close to the camera i want them all and so uh so i'm not as familiar with how unity handles and adjusts uh, with high density geometry uh, but unreal engines perfectly happy to use that in scenery these days let's go to the next question next question in from brian duck in plymouth missouri uh does anyone have experience with einstar 3d scanner from shining 3d would the panel recommend this for prosumer work go ahead nick so yeah and I, i'm not sure if it's einstar i thought it was einscan i could but you know, so mine specifically einscan eight uh hd pro and uh it it comes in a primary model that does not texture you know so if you buy the base model it will give you geometry but not texture and then for a few hundred dollars you can add like an extra usb camera that kind of just snaps into the side of it and then that'll give you some color information but which it's, model do you have the do you texture know which, which model you have there the model i have is einstein einstein scan hd pro so I think it was in the six thousand dollar ish yep. range from uh, B and H uh, is is where I got mine, and uh, and then it was another few hundred dollars to get the little color module that goes on the side. What we found is that the um, the color module gives you color, but it's not the fidelity that we get out of uh, photogrammetry with a you know a, a good SLR shooting raw. What's really nice is actually uh, Shining 3D just this month, or maybe it was November. Uh, put a video out on YouTube showing how you can use reality capture to combine the geometry result from the Einscan HD Pro with a photogrammetry photography series model and take the fidelity of the, the photogrammetry textures and bake them down to the, the better density, better accuracy scan from the structured light scanner. And so I, I you know, look on the Shining 3D channel on YouTube and, and you can find that. And uh, so, yeah, that's that hybrid approach, I think, is really the way to go for uh, smaller objects. And so that's, yeah, that uh, for prosumer work for objects, uh, you know, it's actually kind of hard to beat um, those scanners. Next question. Yes. Next question in from James Fossiline in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Is there any place that we could save LIDAR scans for future historical use? Thinking of buildings that might be demolished or landscape that has changed. Go ahead, Nick. So, yeah, um, there's lots of places. Uh, Sketchfab is, is really popular. A lot of museums will actually 
post their uh, collections onto places like Sketchfab and you can look at them and download them. Uh, so, I mean, that's that would be a readily searchable library. And uh, that, that would be that's the first one that comes to mind. I mean, there's a, pl a few different 3D library websites that you could upload to and then know that your data is stored in the cloud and accessible. And and I would always, like with photos, two physical places in one one place in the cloud is a good place to get started. <laughs> Next question. Next question from Juan C. Robles in Mexico City, Mexico. How accurate is the LiDAR on the iPhone compared with photogrammetry? Good, Nick. So there's a lot of ways of, of, of measuring that. It depends, first of all, you know, on how good is your photogrammetry, because photogrammetry is much more prone to subtle distortions, especially as you get further away from where you're actually taking your photos from. So like vertical walls will start to bend away, for example. Uh, so photogrammetry can be more accurate than LiDAR because you can get in closer and get more fine detail uh, with with photogrammetry than you can with LiDAR. But with larger objects, LiDAR is going to more quickly give you an accurate result, you know, especially you know, once you're in that two to three foot range and up. Um, but then LiDAR starts to lose accuracy as you scan a large, specifically iOS LiDAR loses accuracy the larger and larger the space that you're you're scanning. And so if you do photogrammetry properly with calibration objects in view of most, if not all of your photos, uh, photogrammetry can be extremely precise. So as and, with many things, the answer is it depends. And one of the things that, um, you know, one of the other advantages of photogrammetry is that you can take a lot of photos all at one time of an object. So for instance, for game characters, a lot of times this is done with 150 cameras all in one place and the, and the basketball player or football player just goes in, does, does a bunch of different positions and all the cameras fire. Those are automatically pulled into a, into a shell-based control of Metashape. Metashape just grabs them all and you'll see you, a lot of times, I'll tr show that at some point, but they have um, little patterns that tell Metashape where the cameras are so that they, it's a lot easier for it to calibrate. And then it makes the model. That model then gets dropped into ZBrush. ZBrush cleans it up. And then it goes into Maya to be rigged. Um, next question. Next question coming into us from JJ McKenna in Santa Venetia, California. Which is the oldest iDevice that supports LiDAR? Go ahead, Nick. Uh, I think it's any device that has the Pro moniker. So I, I don't know. Some, yeah, the, the 12 I, Pro I is the first one. The first one that came out that had it. Um, and then 13, 14, of course. Uh, a lot of the tools that you can download will will actually do a pretty good job of digitizing without the lidar, and like they'll just use the parallax between the cameras. But it's not. But it's going to be much more accurate. But yeah, the iPhone 12 Pro is the was the first one that had lidar built into it, and the iPad, the iPad of that same year, earlier that year, was the first iPad to have that. And nothing's changed, I think, in the lidar sensor since then. They haven't made it. It hasn't gotten better or more accurate or anything else. Next question. Next question from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Can you do decent LiDAR scans with an iPhone outdoors that you can submit to Google Maps? Go ahead, Nick. I don't see why not. I mean, you can definitely do decent LiDAR scans outdoors with the LiDAR. Uh, I've done it in daylight. Um, I haven't done like open daylight, but uh, I haven't had problems with that. And, to, you know, obviously I would imagine that uh, Google has some review point or review standards, but uh, you can scan those and you can submit them. So, Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael, what would there be? Uh, would there be any way to transmit the lidar data in real time to Unity or Unreal Engine for something similar to Radiohead's House of Cards video made with lidar? Uh, go ahead, Nick. So I, I believe the technology being used for House of Cards was most likely volumetric video. Uh, I'm not aware, like certainly with iOS, there's a processing step so that data isn't being transmitted live. Uh, so there are mechanisms that allow live geometry to go into things like I, uh, Unreal Engine. In fact, uh, USD is essentially a live video format. So you can have a single USD stage, is, is what they're called, um, and have multiple tools like Maya and Unreal Engine and you know Pixar tools and NVIDIA tools. And they could all be accessing the same stage and they can all be editing it live. And so uh, iOS LiDAR, and I'm, I'm not aware of any Leica LiDAR that has a live feed of the data. Now, you can save that data out as USD and and, and open that up, but um, I'm pretty sure that a, a live music video would have been using something that's uh, volumetric video. And so, uh, you know, Sony, uh, Intel, Microsoft all have different technologies for achieving that, and they can stream the geometry into tools like Unreal. Yeah, I've... I have to admit, I've not seen volumetric video be real time. Um, there may it may be available. I've seen it captured. Microsoft has a big studio down in LA, um, and they capture it, but that takes days. <laughs> now, once you have it, you can move the camera all over the place and capture a lot of different angles. Um, the the live portion of it, I haven't I haven't seen um, yet. It's an enormous. I mean, just a stunning amount of calculation um, of, of processing that is required for that. Um, but we, we might be able to get somebody on for that. We'll, we'll see. Next question. Harshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, where it's warm. Uh, what type of information is provided via a time-of-flight sensor? Maybe I'm mistaking the namesake, but what might be the found on a mobile device aside from LiDAR? I go ahead, Nick. In terms of, I'm not sure if they're asking what I think LiDAR is time-of-flight. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's... Yeah, I, I think that's... Yeah, I, I, you know, it's the interference of the pattern is, yeah, that how long does it take to bounce back? And um, that, you know, the, the main piece of data that you're getting is, you know, where three-dimensionally in space relative to the device did that laser stop and bounce back? And so you're, get, you're getting a 3D point and then those 3D points can then be abstracted as a point cloud. And then that point cloud can be, all those points can be connected and like, hey, there's a mesh and that's uh, that's a surface. So that's basically what we're collecting. Um, the camera is also collecting red, green, blue uh, image data. And so then that image data is being uh, placed onto the resulting mesh to give it the colors that you ultimately see. So uh, that's predominantly the data. And then you can extrapolate data from that. You could say, all right, from this vertex to the first, this vertex in 3D space, what's the distance? And that's, that's how that tape measure tool works. And, oh, okay, that's 25 feet. Um, that's mainly the the data that we're getting. The images are probably, you know, they're using the camera. I haven't actually checked into the EXIF data that's in the JPEG images, but um, there's a good chance that that has GPS data and uh, time of acquisition as well. And so that uh, you could correlate all of that data if you liked. Nick, Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully we'll get you back. Thanks Have for having me. 
Yeah, yeah it's been fun. I think we're going to be doing a lot more in this area, uh, both with uh, LiDAR and stuff. We're going to try to drag some Nick back for some motion capture discussions as well, as well as AR, VR, uh, and XR. So stay tuned for uh, all of that. We're going to be doing a lot more of that over the next year, um, at least once a week in some version of this subject, um, and uh, definitely dealing with uh, capturing the world uh, in 3D uh, some, at least once a month. So, so stay tuned for all of that. Um, all right. Thank you so much to the panelists uh, for all the answers and great discussion. Um, it's uh, it's always good to see all of you. Can't do this without you. And uh, thanks to our producers asking all the great questions and moving things forward. Um, you know, it's what makes the show. You know, I try to explain to people like I said, you just got to talk for a little while until the until the the questions queue up, and then after that, we just answer questions. And so that and that's really our show. And so we really depend heavily on both the producers to ask the questions as well as to vote on them. So we, we really, it's a very, we've been talking about it a lot recently, just very symbiotic relationship between, uh, I don't think there's any show like this where we have so many, you know, there's so many people, everyone is making the show together, which is a very odd um, and exciting thing. Um, and thanks to the incredible team, both uh, building the tools, using the tools, prepping and prepping all of us when we show up, um, and uh, and also running the show, of course. Uh, there's a there's a small village um, growing into a small town um, that that kind of puts the show together every day. So we really appreciate all the effort that everyone puts into it. And now we're going to jump into after hours. Nick, we have to get we have to get you and the BLK together so you can scan some things. Yes, please. Yes, please. I'm, 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 uh, I'm a little offended that you were in the East Coast and I didn't with that, and and I didn't hear about it. So until after it happens, so so it's okay. I'm, I'm slammed. I was trying to make it family, not, not trying, but I did do some scanning. Ah, yeah, that's it. Cool. Scanned. Someone inspired me to scan the house so that I can make a. It's not done yet, but if I can make a little, uh, snow globe. If you're around, I can bring you and family members. I can bring loads of people to that botanical garden. It's a great attraction. We could spend the day scanning and your family can explore the grounds. Yes. About Longwood Gardens. Yes, it is long. It is Longwood Gardens. And so I we can get you in. Excellent.